This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Ash Cooper. Now, Ash has an incredible life story from being part of an international schoolboy choir to ultimately joining one of the most elite specialist teams in the British Army. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey into singing, flying helicopters, stories from his deployments, the power of therapy dogs, his non-profit, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ash Cooper. Enjoy. Well, Ash, I want to start by saying welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. Thank you for having me. It is beautiful to have another British voice every once in a while, so <laughs> thank you. Are you feeling a bit alone there, are you? I do sometimes. I do. I feel like I'm that, you know, adopted, redheaded, you know, Englishman in a, in a nation of Americans. So it's nice once in a while to chat to a fellow Brit. I hear Brit. a little bit of accent there. You've, you've, you've got, you've, the edge of the Brits has, has come off you a I've bit. been poisoned slightly, but I have lived around the world most of my life. So, you know, it's been a long, long time since I was purely in the UK. So, well, speaking of that, so where geographically we're we finding you today? I'm actually in my office in central London, so not particularly exciting, um, but uh, in central London near a place called Liverpool Street. Beautiful. Well, I know you have a very interesting history. Um, you're one of so many people in your military space that is coming out and being vulnerable and telling, you know, s- telling stories about trauma and those kind of elements. And as we discussed before we started recording last time we chatted, you know, the acknowledgement of childhood trauma, acknowledgement of early life is so important in storytelling, you know, the wellness of a human being, full stop. So I'd love to start at the very beginning of your timeline and work forward from there. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. So I was born in a place called Winchester, which is in the south of England. And back in very many, many decades ago, or rather centuries ago, it was um, uh, the capital of, of England under the Romans. Um, so there's a real rich history um, in Winchester. I uh, was born there, grew up there in the countryside outside the city, went to local school until um, I was a bit older, and then sort of high school um, went closer to London. Um, I am one of three kids. I have a twin sister and a sister who's 10 years younger than me. Um, and they all live fairly locally, actually, to to where I am within within an hour or so um, of where I live now, outside of the city. So I listened to an incredible conversation with you on the Declassified podcast, and you touched on some of the challenges that you had in your early life. Before we even go to that generation, 
were you exposed at all to the kind of family unit that your father was raised in? Um, to an extent, yeah. I mean, he was he came from a, a family that was pretty close and um, normal, invert, you know, inverted commas, as, as any family would be. You know, parents who stayed together till till they died. Um, loving family, you know, one sibling, um, a sister, and they lived, you know, in seeming, seeming, uh, you know, middle class bliss, really. So, as you were, you know, obviously brought into this world, talk to me about those formative years as far as the family dynamic with your mother and your father. Um, well, sadly, my very first memory, which I guess was around age three and a bit. Um, was something that at the time I didn't really understand. It was a, a busy day. I, I remember it was 1976. And in the UK, it's a, it's a year that is remembered by anybody who was alive at that time as being uh, the hottest on record. I mean, it's since been surpassed by by more recent years, but it was a really, really scorching year. And we had a massive dog, a Great Dane, who sadly died of heat stroke on that day. And I just re remember being aware of just loads of people who were not part of the family being around the house. We had vets. Then an ambulance turned up and essentially what had happened all at the same time, typically, um, was that our dog had um, disappeared, as apparently is often the case, you know, on their last legs, as it were. This dog, um, Portia, had had gone off to find somewhere quiet to sort of curl up and, and pass away. And so we were trying to find the dog. And um, it was the same day that my dad had taken an overdose, which became a feature of, of my early childhood is just, you know, I remember many things in relation to you know various overdoses um or incidents along those lines um so yeah it was a really that, that's a weird first memory for me was just this sort of mayhem of an ambulance and medics and the vet and my mum trying to keep us away and uh keep everybody calm so me and my twin sister sort of wondering what the hell was going on so when you look back now you've got this you know not only you know the veteran uh, armed forces experience but you have become a kind of advocate in the mental health space when you look back at that early time and your father's battling addiction with in this from what i understand alcoholism and, and pills as well what do you think was the genesis of that what, what was he trying to dampen do you think i don't know but i do remember being told consistently by him you know when we were forced to or when, you know we were dragged not dragged physically but you know made to get up and you know when he returned from the the pub or the bar to come and be talked at or shouted at or just be up while he was ranting and raving and we were told constantly that you know we were the cause of the drinking and I remember that from a very early age that we were somehow the thing that was causing this to happen clearly that's not the case and he was clinically depressed and and had had an illness um but it, it really did um sort of color a lot of those early early memories sadly but I generally have never focused on those negatives you know because he became so unreliable both professionally and, and lost you know all of his work and ultimately his job and many other things um it forced both me and my sister um but i think particularly me because i i then went away to school when i when i was a a singer you know when i was very young and, and you had to board so i was living at school from age eight really till 13 uh, and then beyond it kind of forced and created a requirement for me to be very independent and rely, you know, not really at all on, on, on him or those things that perhaps in an, in a more standard or traditional family environment, you would expect a parent to do to support or, or look after you or, or provide that sort of security. So at the time it was pretty traumatizing. 
And I remember being, you know, upset quite a lot of the time. Um, but actually I took from that in my later years, the fact that I could be, you know, very flexible and adaptable and and take every situation as it came and find ways through it was was a strength. And I wouldn't wish it on anybody to go through some of the things that we witnessed or we had to deal with. But in hindsight, it certainly made me the character that I am today, whether people like me or not, or people agree with how I live my life. But it's meant that I just feel like there's a lot to do and I will just get on and do it and not wait to either be told or wait for other people to uh, do it for me or, or in some cases with me. So you mentioned singing. You, you reached quite a pinnacle when it came to that particular musical discipline. And you talked about, you know, eight o'clock, eight o'clock, eight years old was when you transitioned into a private school. Walk me through your singing journey. How, do, how, does, how does a child get to the point that they're such a great vocalist that at eight years old, they're poached for uh, you know, a, a choral program? I don't honestly remember quite how it came about other than being told I had to go for a, a singing test or examination with, with this choir and just went along and did what they told me to do. And, and they said, OK, you can join. Um, what I do, because I recently went back to a, a reunion of people who I sang with who I've not seen for, you know, 40 something years in some cases. And looking and we went to the cathedral where I sang, which is the cathedral, which is an incredible place and attended a service where the, the current choristers were singing and god they they looked like they were four or five years old i mean they were clearly eight to 13 but i thought you know these youngsters when i think to my own daughter and looking at friends kids who are eight to ten or you know that sort of age group who just cannot sit still don't do what they're told you know we had to be quite grown up from quite an early age and realize that we sang we had to do rehearsals before school after school sing in the cathedral and do all our work as well that um it was it was a pretty full-on thing but we had a number of lucky breaks. So just singing in the choir was clearly, you know, an honor and, and exciting and was was great as an experience as a musician. But um we had a lucky break in, I guess, 1985, where Andrew Lloyd Webber had written a new piece called The Requiem. And he was looking for a choir to be the choir that was going to do the premiere and then ultimately make a record and, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, he picked our choir. We did some summer festival at his local church and and, and did all that with his wife, Sarah Brightman, was the, the, the female um, lead soprano. Um, and then we, because we were picked as the choir to do this whole Requiem thing, we were flown to New York for the world premiere. We sang in St. Thomas's Church on Fifth Avenue. It was live to 60 countries or something globally. The album that they made, we recorded in the Abbey Road Studios in London of EMI, the Beatles studio. And I was a huge Beatles fan, so that was really exciting. Um, the Placido, Placido Domingo is the, the tenor and the huge orchestra and, and all that sort of jazz. And so that was a, you know, what an experience as a, I think I was one of the 12 then, I guess, or um, nearly 13, um, to be flown across. And, you know, we, they gave us spending money and we just cruised around New York kind of doing, you know, amazing things as a young kid. You know, my eyes were open. Then we, the following year on the back of that, we did a coast to coast tour of America and Canada. Um, I was the one of the older kids then. So, you know, very fortunate to be one of the lead soloists. So I sang in um, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, you know, in, in LA, I think it is, and um, in Carnegie Hall in New York. And, you know, really amazing things that as a kid, you just don't really <laughs> quite understand how special that is. You just get told to go on stage, do your stuff and then leave. And you're like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but in hindsight, you know, it, what an, a formative experience for me. And I think honestly and genuinely, it really instilled in me that sense of service although I didn't recognize it as such at the time, but because we were required to, you know, 
perform for other people or you know singing services in the church and whatever that that we were always putting the in the joy or enjoyment or um the needs of others i guess before ourselves so it didn't seem like a massive leap when the rest of my professional life you know quite quickly thereafter when i when i graduated became in the same sort of vein of, of service of some sort now was this the same kind of time period when i think of choir and i actually sang in a choir i think it was a very for, very very short time so i must have been awful but um uh <laughs> alan <laughs> jones was a figure i think it was walking in the air from the snowman if yeah, i'm not mistaken snowman, yeah so was was there was that actually an era in in the world of of choirs that was kind of a pinnacle between all these kind of intersecting lines you know whether it's the phantom of the I, opera and the opera sure it was world. a pinnacle but it was certainly that sort of era i remember that happening and i can't remember i think he's a bit older than, than i was but um it was that sort of era. I mean, we, it was quite unusual. We ended up with one of the Lloyd Webber um, songs from the Requiem called Pierre Yezu. Uh, we ended up being on top of the pops, which was the sort of, I can't remember what it's called, the hit parade or something in the States. And we ended up getting into number three on top of the pops in 1986, unseated by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, which is <laughs> quite an interesting claim. <laughs> to play in the um, yeah, so, yeah, it was, uh, I guess, choral stuff at the time was bigger than maybe it is now. But it was, um, yeah, it was a pretty fun time. Now, contrasting that with a lot of the elite sports people I've had on the show, and obviously that's a route that you found yourself in as well, but you've probably seen this in, in America specifically, the the level of athleticism that some of these school children reach is phenomenal, but there is also, you know, more often than not, a cost of, you know, that kind of um, uh, the immense load of training that when they get to 18, 19, 20, 21, now they're riddled with injuries and more often than not, their their kind of sporting journey from there on in is, is almost null and void. Um, that overtraining element. In the singing world, you know, you've got these children at eight years old and then, you know, moving forward into their teens. What are the pros of that lifestyle and were there any cons, you know, whether it was the workload itself or even on, on the vocal cords? Um, I mean, it definitely was like a professional job you know you were you were doing a job of singing and you were doing your study as a, as a young kid i think for me i mean we had to also learn instruments so i you know played the flute and piano and a few things um for me though i really loved sport and i could do sport while i was in the choir but you know fortunately as a as a as a boy singer or a treble you know your voice breaks and i was trying to when I kind of got a little bit sick of the singing i was trying to find ways you know not that it was ever going to happen this way but i was trying to you know make silly noises to try and encourage my voice to break sooner so I'd be let off the hook of having to continue to sing um but for me I guess a little bit like sports you know I know a lot of really talented athletes I mean I, I actually wasn't elite although I represented my country in a few things I was never like an Olympian or you know really exciting stuff like that but um where you see as I did a lot of my friends from school who were world champions as you know as, as junior junior world champions in rowing and, and other things many of them stopped almost immediately after that they kind of not they, they'd had enough but it was sort of okay that's a different phase of my life and I, I think you do see this a lot in those sports where kids are coached you know and you know from a very very early age it becomes that the well, you hear about it all the time people say they just don't enjoy it anymore they might still be on the top of their game but they're no longer enjoying the sport and the competing um for me with the singing it wasn't quite like that but I just wanted to do other things I've always been somebody who likes to try new things, see if I can be any good at it. 
I've never been brilliant at anything, but I can do a few things fairly well. And I just feel this sort of pressure that there's only a finite amount of time on this earth. And I want to try as many things and have as many experiences. So when I went to my high school, after I left the choir school, I just wanted to not rebel, but I didn't want to do as much music because I just saw other opportunities for sports. And I was a terrible student because I got a music scholarship to go to that school. Um, but I knew my music lessons were kind of covered by the scholarship. And and I, <laughs> I hope my my singing or my my music teacher isn't listening to this. But um, because I played a lot of rugby in those early days, I and I was terrible at practicing playing the instruments. I would play rugby. And if I knew I was going to get into trouble for having not practiced the thing that my teacher had said I needed to practice before the next lesson, I'd just take my fingers together and go to the lesson saying, sorry, miss, I've broken my fingers again. And she'd go, oh, poor you. Well, we'll see you when, you know, when you've recovered. And then I <laughs> let off the hook. So I was a terrible student, but it was sort of me pushing back about, I didn't want to be known as the musical kid or the music kid. I wanted to do more things and, and seeing the opportunity to learn sports and you know, new sports and do other things was what really excited me for the next phase of my life, I guess. Now, what element of escapism and solitude was there in the boarding side of this, you know, the school program that you found yourself in? Um, I wouldn't say the solitude per se. I, I found we, those of us who boarded, it was a school where you could have day pupils and they obviously left at the end of the or mid afternoon and they went home. We actually, rather than feeling the, the poor relation or the ones who were, um, you know, in a worse position, we felt pretty superior in a way to the kids who were day kids because so much happened that was busy and interesting and fun with your friends after the regular school day finished. Um, and all the extracurricular stuff, actually, I, I felt you wouldn't have really been able to do it if you'd been a day pupil or it would have been a lot harder for parents to organise and, and you to be part of. Um, but as a younger kid, you know, in those choir days, the, the programme was so rigorous that because, as you'd imagine, you know, singing for a church or a cathedral in this case, Christmas Day is a big day, Easter Day and all this stuff. So when the main school broke up for the end of term, we had to stay on for several weeks in some cases after everyone else had left. And there were maybe, you know, 12 or 20, I can't remember how many kids there were in the choir, let's say 20 boys left in the school, you know, designed for 250 or more pupils. And we rattled around the school just doing basically all the music stuff. But again, we turned it into a positive. So because we were there for Christmas morning, away from our families, because we had to sing three services on Christmas Day before we were allowed to go home, we actually got an extra stocking. So we saw that as a bonus. Um, and it, it felt a bit like a club. You know, we were part of something that we thought maybe we didn't think it was that special at the time, but it was definitely different. And, uh, and we took positives from it. When you think of choir again, you're not thinking of, you know, fight club style, you know, physical interaction so then you chose a pretty physical sport in rugby what was that transit i know you said you're doing them kind of side by side but you know what was it allowed you as a smaller person to be successful in such a high contact sport i'm not sure really i mean i i've yeah i've always been one of the smallest in all the teams i've been in which is you know the bane of my life i've got big feet but i'm i'm not as tall as i should be for the size <laughs> of feet i've got which has always been an irritation of mine um I think just being committed, you know, just knowing that if you give everything, then you can still, you know, have some success. Like I said, I was never elite and I did some international stuff, but um, it wasn't, you know, I was never an Olympic champion, as I said, or in in, in full, you know, adult size teams, as it were. But um, I just really enjoyed being part of that, particularly in teams where everybody was better than you, or I could see that people were, there was so much I could learn. And I, I love being in things where I'm which is often the case, you know, the least capable or the least, um, you know, qualified where I'm learning all the time and trying to keep up with those who are, are better. 
Um, that's not to say it was frustrating if you didn't make the team or you got dropped from the team, but that sort of process, it was something that I just had to accept that I was never going to be the, the six foot six, you know, 300 pound, whatever. Now, just kind of jumping forward for a second in the, the kind of unit that you were in, in the army, a lot of people that I've heard from, you know, for example, American special forces, um, we have this facade that all of the elite warriors are six foot whatever, you know, 200 plus pounds, um, you know, looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger from Commando. And then you actually see that, no, there's a very kind of average build and it's the mindset that's most important. So when, you know, in in the, the different um, organizations within the military that you've worked in, what has been your perception of that? I mean, you talked about being successful as a smaller rugby player. What does the the, the successful soldier look like and is it the same kind of superhero that a lot of people buy into no i think i mean yeah no your, your, your question is a good one i mean i've spent a lot of time working with um with u.s forces and, and international forces i've spent seven years or spent seven years deployed altogether in in different combat zones or conflict zones with um, different nato nations um, predominantly you know u.s often you know embedded or attached to them or as a liaison and um there's definitely there must be something in the water in America. They do seem to be bigger um, and uh, more like the the kind of guy or girl that you would expect to be in the more specialist type roles. Um, and I, I worked in the Gurkhas. All those soldiers are really small, but they're tougher. You know, really tough. They can carry um, you know heavy loads and go for longer than anybody else. And I think in the UK, it's more because we just expect never to be picked up that we always expect that we're going to have to carry everything we need and walk to where we're going. <laughs> Whereas uh, the US is so much more uh, well-resourced that even if one helicopter is broken, there'll be 20 others that could you know, pick you up instead. So I think for us, many of my military colleagues and friends from every unit that I've been, even when I was a pilot as well, flying helicopters, you know, the military, I mean, it clearly will be big people in it, but generally I, I found that many of my, um, the people that I respect and look up to were the best soldiers were, more of the endurance athlete type frame rather than those who carry lots of extra muscle um, who are very strong. Um, you know, there's different types of strength, obviously both physical and mental. Um, but in terms of some of the more specialist areas that I have worked in, in coalition and other, other roles, although there are different ways that we would select people for some of those positions, they do tend to get the same kind of individual at the end of it with the same, you know, mindset or the ways of thinking about problems you know for the more specialist world where one you know might find oneself it's often the brain that you're selecting not the fact that somebody is 200 pounds or can lift or bench press x or y thing i mean i'm not i'm you, you can see i know your listeners can't see but you can see i'm not a big um sort of uh crossfitter that would be able to compete at that sort of level but i can well, when i'm not injured or disabled i can keep going yeah, even if it's slowly i'll just keep going because that's kind of what we do now just staying on that for one second did you or have you observed any common denominators with the background of these individuals that you've worked alongside i mean you yourself obviously had some pretty significant trauma when you were younger but you navigated and you turned it into a strength um a lot of the people that come on the show, there seems to be a lot of trauma in you know early life, and and it kind of forged not only resilience but made them 
drove that desire to be the protector, to be strong, to be the sheepdog in their community. So have you observed any kind of commonalities in a lot of the people that you serve that you've had the, the chance to actually ask them about their earlier life? No, not really. I mean, for a lot of the units that I've been part of, whether it was you know, flying or the Gurkhas or, or other specialist work, the fact that people have put themselves forward to go through fairly rigorous selection procedures, you know, the flying took 18 months really from turning up to being qualified to fly counterterrorism missions, you know, in, in pretty dangerous places. Um, I think it's those people who, a lot of people talk about, you know, putting themselves forward for these things, but actually the numbers who actually do generally will have a, a similar approach to life of just going for it and trying and doing their best. That's, that's the commonality. But the strength of so many of these units and these people is the fact that they absolutely come from completely different backgrounds. It's the, the diversity of thinking and the diversity of background that makes some of these units so you know impressive and capable. It's because they're not cut from the same cloth. Because you want, when faced with a wicked problem that you don't know an answer to, you don't want 10 other people who've had the same background as you because the chances are they'll also be struggling to work out quite how to solve this problem that no one's seen before. So having really diverse perspectives, different lenses through which people view the world, that's the richness of being part of these kinds of elite or high-performing teams where you can invite challenge and seek out those views deliberately that might be different from your own to make sure that you come up with the most robust or effective plan to solve the problem. Beautiful. I'm so glad I asked that because that ties in so well with the diversity, and I'm using air quotes here, um, conversation in the fire service. You know, there absolutely have been many times in history where certain groups were excluded in hiring practices, and that is unacceptable. But there have been many times as well to, to counter, at, counter that, they have gone around, filled quotas of people based on pigmentation or genitalia, and then siphoned them in without challenging them to meet the same bar which obviously you know receives a lot of pushback as well what i believe the diversity conversation needs to be is exactly what you said you know you need your big people you need your small people you need your empathetic people you need your aggressive people you know all those different mindsets as you said can apply differently to certain situations and where i think the actual diversity as far as different demographics being represented that's when mentorship comes in that's when you go into these communities that are underserved but then you challenge them and give them the tools to rise to that bar to then become a fantastic candidate for that profession yeah no absolutely i mean i i hate it when diversity and inclusion is a box ticking exercise where people have a you know, we need to have X percentage of people from this background or that background. It should still be absolutely a meritocracy, but there are ways in which you can still create conditions for those people to add value, if, even if they may not be um, quite the right people for the, the full-blown team or to, to undertake everything you want. Um, the challenge we found quite often was, well, I, I found quite often in many roles was assuming the type of profile of the person that you should have in a team. And there's one example where, again, it was linked to the, to the US and fighting quite hard to get who I believe the right person was. It ended up, or it turned out that this person was a female applicant for a role that I had in Afghanistan that was a, a US provided position where, you know, the incumbent had to come from a US uh, group. 
And it was to run the logistics basically internally for my team, but also to train the locals in how to do logistics professionally. And three resumes were sent to me for, for me to then choose or select one that I preferred. And there were two male uh, resumes that came through. Both were major levels. So was that 04, I think, in US parlance. Um, but, you know, mid-level officers who had technically everything that they needed. And then there was a, a the third resume was of a, a female um, logistics officer who was one rank below the men, but she previously worked in the same kind of units that, that we were working with uh, or part of. And her background just looked more diverse and more interesting. And professionally, she had more than the two guys in terms of the qualifications that I thought were relevant. So I sent my report back, or not my report, but my, please, I can I have her? And I got a polite kind of, um, thank you for your response. Um, we put hers in really for balance. So if you could pick one of the two guys, oh, and, I, and, and I'm and I can be quite belligerent, I suppose, when I believe you know something's unfair or or that um, you know the wrong thing has been done. So I dug my heels in and said no. That you know I made a decision based on my understanding of this country. I've spent nearly four years here. I know the locals pretty well because the the logic they gave for saying that she wouldn't work was because you know the locals don't listen to women and therefore she would um, you know not be successful. And I said, I believe that actually because she has all the skills that they will be terrified of looking awful or you know, crap in front of her and they'll probably work harder because she's a woman rather than, you know, not listen to her because she's a woman. Uh, I ended up winning or succeeding in that argument, um, thankfully, and she turned up and not only did did what I'd hoped happen, happen. Um, she was super successful, um, but also because she was very bright and had a wicked sense of humour, she changed the dynamic of my team brilliantly. It was a multinational team. And for some of those countries participating, for them, the specialist world was more about how you wore your uniform and how cool you looked than um, you know what you actually did with the skills that you've been trained with. So she didn't take any of that. You know, She cut people dead when they were just trying to be too cool for school. Um, and so it was, it was brilliant for me to see somebody just shake up how we ran things. And having that female perspective was absolutely critical to how we delivered that phase of our of our partnership with with that country. So um yeah, I mean there's many examples. I know this is just one, but that was the right thing to do. But she was, you know, as qualified and more qualified than than her male counterparts. But um I would have still fought for her anyway because of what I thought she would bring. Now just staying on that, I mean that's an amazing story. You in the fire service, in law enforcement, in the military, of course, we are a certain type of personality and with that comes an element of ego or confidence to know how you want to describe it how was she able to navigate multiple different countries cultures and egos to to as you said cut them down and, and equalize them to get you guys to actually work as a team well she was mixed race herself um so i think she'd probably grown up with the sort of having to balance and navigate different cultures throughout her entire life so um, you know, that I think just came naturally. I mean, there, there was nothing that was obvious that she did consciously. She was just that kind of character that fitted in. Um, everyone respected her because she was professional and capable, but actually everyone liked her as well because she was funny, bright, and had a razor sharp tongue that would, you know, if you were stepping out of line or trying to be too cool, then she would make you feel pretty, pretty small <laughs> if you got it wrong. Well, I want to walk through, you know, your journey into the military, but just before we do, you know, you you grew up in this household. You know, sadly, you were watching your dad succumbing to to addiction, and then obviously the ripple effect of of all the horrendous things that come along with that. You know, you end up in in a boarding school. You're singing. I'm sure there's a lot of healing elements to that. 
one i think of the 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 least understood elements of first responder and military mental health is what happened to us before we put the uniform on and the fire service does a horrendous job of doing anything at the front door and one of my kind of ideas is take all the money we waste on polygraphs and psych tests and put it into counseling instead so that you have an opportunity to build a relationship with the counselor and maybe offload some of that trauma before you you know start seeing all the horrible things that we do when you look back now, my childhood, you know, I, there were definitely some traumatic things. I almost died in a house fire. I almost got crushed by a wall in, um, do you remember Wookiee Hole around there? There was yeah, this yeah, massive yeah, retaining yeah. wall that was that probably about, yeah. yeah, about 30 feet in this pub. And it came to, I mean, literally swept the car away. Had we been five seconds earlier or, um, or later leaving, we would have been killed. So there were some big things. My parents divorced. But when I look back, so many areas that we talk about as healing now were in in my childhood by accident, just embedded, whether it was growing up on a farm and all the animals. My dad was a vet, so we were healing. Um, you know, there was the fresh air, there was good food, there was exercise. So many areas that I think offset the trauma and allowed me to process a lot before I became a firefighter. I've heard you talking on, on um, the Declassified podcast about, you know, feeling somewhat resilient to a lot of the stuff as you progress through your career. What elements do you think were healing that allowed you to balance some of the pretty significant trauma you had when you were a young boy? I've never really thought about it, honestly, like that or really at all. But, you know, your mention of growing up on a farm and animals, I mean, that is absolutely a feature of my life. I've rarely ever been without a, at least a dog. And growing up, we had three Great Danes in a pretty small house, plus rabbits and hamsters. We weren't very good with hamsters. We think we went through nine or ten <laughs> hamsters. They, they kept them either getting lost or running away. And we ended up, we stopped naming them individually and just went for numbers after that. So it was Herbie one. And then we got up to Herbie nine or ten. Um, you know, we had rabbits and fish. Again, not very good with fish. Um, but dogs, you know, having something there has been really powerful for me. It's not, I don't have an assistance dog, but, you know, the dog I have now, Maya, who's actually just outside in the office, probably being fed treats by the rest of my team. Um, she's nearly 15. And, you know, growing up with the Great Danes, they we'd learned the circle of life really early on in, in my childhood because Great Danes generally only live till about age eight average. And we used to get rescue dogs because we wanted to give homes to those that, you know, were less fortunate. And they lived even less, um, you know, lengthy lives. So this dog now, Maya, who's a German shorthead pointer, to have her 15 years nearly, she'll be 15 next year, has just been, you know, through some of my more recent trauma, family trauma of, of various flavors. That's been absolutely critical for me to, you know, she's and she's lived with me and she's got more stamps in her passport than most people have. She's lived with me in Australia. She lived with me in Washington. We drove to Toronto. She's been all over the States. We She's been in Belgium, Netherlands, France. I mean, she's got lots of stamps and she's super adaptable. So she's my travel buddy. Um, we've been everywhere together over, over her life. And when I was living in Australia, um, where my daughter lives for a period in, in the early 10s to do a, a master's degree, um, it was also to be able to you know be closer to her because that was a, a bit of a battle to get time with her. Um, having my dog there, when you're feeling pretty low and you don't even really want to get out of bed because things are feeling so overwhelming, having this this creature coming and wagging as if, you know, she's the most excited she's ever been that you're awake and now it's time to go for a walk. You know, it always felt better having gone out and having someone else to or something else to to look after and care for. So I guess without having really given it much thought until you mention it now, for me, having another presence has been the thing that probably 
kept me from not that I've ever had any suicidal thoughts ever. And I'm very lucky in that respect, given all the trauma that I've experienced at work and at home. Um, I think it certainly made a massive difference to me having some, some, someone there. I mean, I, she thinks she's a human, so I'll call her someone rather than something, but having, having animals there um, to just keep you on the straight and narrow has been, you know, a big factor for me. Yeah, I agree 100%. My, I haven't got mine, you know, classified as a therapy dog or anything because I don't need to, but, um, she is 100% that. And actually, I, I've had one for, she was 10 and a half and she just passed away about three weeks ago, which that's the thing is when that is your buddy and then they, they pass away, then it's devastating. But I, I got a puppy about a year ago and she's outside my office right now. So there was an overlap, which was, you know, life saving as well. Cause I'm mourning one, but there's still one there that, as you said, needs yeah. to be walked, needs to, to, you know, you wake up and you have a purpose. You got to feed them. You got to walk them. You got to get outside in nature. And all of a sudden you're immersed in those healing things again. So I think it's important because so many people I've had on the show have been to such a dark place. And some of us don't. And the thing is, that's equally as important to share because then you're telling people, right, here accidentally are the things that I had growing up and I think they seem to be working. So let's talk about that as well. These are some tools that offset yeah. some of the horrible things that happen. I mean, she's absolutely a therapy dog without being labeled a therapy dog, you know, just having her there. And I see other you know, friends and colleagues who have, you know, assistance dogs that are registered as such because they really do need them. And I mean, they are clearly trained to do incredibly um great work you know when they can sense that you're getting agitated and i've seen them you know doing their work where they will just bring somebody back into the present when they can feel or sense that their their handler is or their owner is starting to get anxious or something's about to happen she's not that but you know she's been great and i de i definitely took it hard when she was no longer interested in really going running with me um i mean i'm not a fast runner anymore but uh, i do like to get out when i can if i'm not injured or, or my injuries aren't hurting um and i used to love going with her because she would go all day and she still walks a lot at the moment but she just wants to potter now a bit more she doesn't want to come at my even my slow pace and that was kind of sad that i now don't have her running with me but you know just bringing her into the office today just watching how she makes other people smile on the street i love that on the tube you know, on the subway she's such a flirt i mean she'll go home with anybody she's a she's a nightmare <laughs> but just make seeing people see her you know she's got a, such a kind face and she'll let people pet her and she just kind of lies down and chills out without making a sound and just seeing the joy she brings other people i kind of i like that you know she's just a they're just great creatures absolutely well you talked about the gurkhas so when you were, you know, in the kind of school college age, you talked about rugby, um, rowing. I know you were a judo practitioner as well. During that time, were you already thinking about the military, or was there someone else, uh, something else in the whole career aspiration element? I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I joined the cadets at school. We had a, a fairly, you know, well-run cadet force that actually was run by ex-regular military folks. And they were the ones who sort of encouraged me saying, have you thought about this as a career? And I hadn't. Um, I missed the deadline to apply for sort of scholarship or sponsorship through um, university, unfortunately. But they encouraged me to think about it. And at the time, the army was pretty big for the UK, at least. Um, and they were encouraging people to join for three years and then they'd encourage people to leave then actually and i thought well you know for three years it'd probably be quite an interesting education learn some leadership travel a bit um so that was my plan when i went to university did my undergraduate degree and then went to sandhurst genuinely feeling that after my year of training there that i would do three years and then again air quotes get a proper job 
Um, and, and that was the plan. Um, I had no thoughts beyond that. And it was only when I went to Sandhurst, which is our West Point equivalent here in the UK, that all officers have to go through if you're joining the army, that I suddenly became aware of all these regiments that I'd never heard of. So I wasn't sponsored by the Gurkhas. It was only when I got there and realized that the Gurkhas were a thing. And I thought that'd be really cool. You know, they were based in Hong Kong at the time. They were also in Brunei on the island of Borneo as the, the UK's jungle warfare specialists. They were part of the airborne brigade. So I'd get to parachute and do all that sort of stuff. And, I, and I'd learn a language, you know, I'm, because of my musical background, I've always loved languages and um, that kind of stuff. So I thought this would be amazing, learn a culture, learn a language and have a really exciting three years and then leave. And of course, three years whizzed by. I was like, I can't possibly leave. There's so much more to do. So that's why I kind of stumbled into the Gurkhas and I was very lucky that they selected me because you have to apply and then they you know, put you through a selection process. So when I think of Gurkhas, obviously I think of Nepalese. I had Nimsdai on the show um, right around, yeah, yeah, right before 14 Peaks came out. So it was, it was beautiful. Got to really hear the oh, story nice. before it hit the screen. Um, but I mean, he obviously talked about some of the incredible men that he served with the selection process, but you know, you think of them as all Nepalese. Well, here you are as an Englishman becoming an, uh, an officer with the Gurkhas. So talk to me about that role, but also there's a lot of folklore about the Gurkhas. Talk to me about them as a fighting force and some of the courage that, that either themselves or some of their, their forefathers um, exhibited in warfare. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Nims and I were actually in the same regiment in the Gurkhas um, back in the day. So yeah, it's a funny, I mean, it's great, awesome to see how amazingly well he's done and he's a machine. Um, and a very inspirational guy. So I'm so happy to see how well he's done and how much inspiration and motivation he gives other people, which is so exciting. So the Gurkhas, um, for those who aren't familiar, as you said, they're all Nepalese um, soldiers. There are a number of British officers that that work with them. So the ratio when I joined uh, in my company of three platoons, I was a platoon commander. I had 30 something soldiers in my platoon. Uh, so there are about a hundred and just over 100 soldiers, I think, in the company. And there were two British officers and everyone else was Nepalese. So clearly there's a requirement to learn Nepalese. So um, I had to learn to speak Nepalese and write Nepalese, albeit pretty poorly. Um, but the history of them is it goes back to the the days of um, sort of the, the, the empire, I guess. And when the British were pushing north from India, they came up. Uh, I think the quote was they, they met um, some troublesome hill people. <laughs> Uh, in Nepal, and there was a bunch of Scottish regiments that were um, on that sort of push. And it became a bit of a stalemate, and the Brits didn't win, and, and the Nepalese held them back. And, and it got to the point in classic sort of um, the ways diplomacy works, I guess. Um, they decided to sort of have a truce, and the Brits decided to co-opt them and say, why don't you join join us? So ever since 1815, the Gurkhas have been part of the, the British army. Also, there are many Gurkhas in the Indian army and obviously in the, in the Nepalese army too. So um, they've got a really long history of serving um, in the British forces. You know, thousands of them were, were in the First World War that you don't really think about in terms of trench warfare. But there were Gurkhas serving there in the Second World War and um, you know, really rich history. More VCs, Victoria Crosses, so the Medal of Honor equivalent, won by Gurkhas than any other regiment um, because of, the, you know, and some of the stories of them are absolutely crazy of the just unwillingness to give in and, you know, just resilience and leadership and courage demonstrated by them. The motto, interestingly, is it's better to die than to be a coward, which sets the bar quite high when you're a young British officer joining. <laughs> God, <laughs> how am I going to, how am I going to you know, maintain this? Um, but incredible people, just the most lovely, you know, reliable, loyal people and capable people you'll ever meet. And, and, you know, I was very lucky as we all did learning Nepalese to get to go to Nepal and trek 
to improve your language and help do welfare work for various charities, including the Gurkha Welfare Trust, to meet, you know, genuinely, um, you know, impoverished and um, sort of the real world of Nepal, as it were, where, where in my case, when I trekked for a month into the east of the country, in some cases, they'd never seen a white person before, um, let alone talk to them or realize that I could speak Nepalese and, and chat to them in Nepali. Um, so a really eye-opening experience, just the kindest people and the most generous people. I think you find this often if you've traveled in many countries around the world. I mean, I'm lucky to have traveled to you know well over 100 countries and it's the poorest countries that I visit where people seem happiest or are willing to give the most when they have the least. And that's just, it's such a humbling experience. And that was really... Um, a moment in my life trekking through there and meeting just the most incredible people and realizing how lucky we are and how often we take so much of what we have for granted. When Nims was on the show, he was talking about an issue that they had where a Gurkha, Gurkha could serve for X amount of years but not be entitled to a British pension. Do you know if that's been remedied at all? Yeah, I mean, it has been. It's it's a more nuanced argument or issue than than perhaps some of the media will portray I mean, if you're a Gurkha soldier, well, if you're a British soldier and you have to basically serve 22 years to get a full pension in the British, uh, in the British Army, where if you're a Gurkha and you're selected and there could be up to 15,000 or more applicants per year for 180 or so places. So it's pretty intense to get in. Um, if you at the three year point, everybody is graded, they sort of do an assessment to see how capable, what potential of these people got. Um, as soldiers, and a line is literally drawn at the three-year point at the 50%. And those below the line, and we may have changed slightly now, I'm probably a little bit out of date, but it used to be that those below the line would never promote. Those above could become lance corporals, corporals, and you know, go up the chain and, and ultimately become officers if they were really good. Um, but those 50, that 50% of each cohort every year, if they remained as riflemen or private soldiers enlisted, then um, they could serve a maximum of 15 years and then they'd be retired because they haven't promoted because they need to make space for the next you know, cohort. So um, saying that they should be treated the same as the Brits um, in that system, if they were treated exactly the same, then actually many of them wouldn't get anything at all because they'd left before the 22 year point. So there is there's more nuance to it. It is being addressed. Um, and the fact that they are now able to apply for passports and citizenship is the right thing to do. If you've served, you know, many years for the UK, and then you retire at 15, 20 years, and you have to go back to Nepal, and you have no greater right to apply for citizenship to return than any random person from anywhere in the world applying. That's wrong. So, you know, the, the system is changing. It, it perhaps arguably changed too slowly for some, but it's certainly being addressed. And I think the situation is far better than it was, but, but it's something that is being looked at, certainly by um, those who have the power to make change. Beautiful. Well, thank you. There's not many people I get to talk to about Gurkhas, so that's a that's a good update <laughs> to hear. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to kind of kind of navigate some of your deployments. Then um, I heard you again on the podcast talking about um, Bosnia. Now here we are once again. Eastern Europe is you know yet again um, an area of conflict at the moment. But we, you know, so much of the conversation has been about the Middle East recently, and some of the previous, um, uh, you know. What am I trying to say here? Conflicts that we had um, are you know, somewhat almost forgotten, whether it's the Falklands or you know the, the Balkans. Um, so, talk to me about 
what it was like you've gone through Sandhurst you know you're training with the Gurkhas and now you find yourself in Bosnia you know what point in the conflict did you find yourself and then what were some of the remnants of that conflict that you were still observing yeah we were I deployed in 1997 so we were post main conflict you know it was really quite unpleasant in the 94 95 period I think was one of some of the worst um so we were post conflict and, and my deployment with the Gurkhas was at a time where they were trying to run the first municipal elections post-conflict. So they were trying to create an air of you know, normality and, and stability and security. And it was an interesting time because so many people had fled during the war to avoid being murdered. And, you know, there was sort of ethnic cleansing between the three main groups, the Bosnians, the Serbs and the Croats. And they were all, you know, some made alliances, but there was a sort of, you know, internecine fighting. Um, and so many people fled, a lot of the Bosnians fled to Germany and um, to register to vote in these elections back in their hometowns, it required people to return to Bosnia, um, back to their houses so they could be resident at an address. And what we saw was clearly less, um, there was less less than all out war, which had happened previously or um, civil war. But those who had remained really resented those who had fled you know, even though they would have killed them if they'd stayed, but there was a real resentment to those who were returning. So we had a lot of incidents where um, there were mines, you know, anti-personnel mines and IEDs being placed in people's houses or in the gardens of their houses to kill or maim them as they return to prevent or, or um, encourage others not to return. So we we dealt with a little bit of that. But I think what I think about mostly now, which definitely struck me at the time as being quite shocking or absolutely shocking, which is more akin to what we're seeing on the TV screens coming out of Bucha and other places in Ukraine where war crimes have been committed. It was hearing and realizing how unpleasant we can be as a, as a race to people who one day have been our neighbors and in you know the current crisis with Ukraine and Russia, family members, and in the Bosnian case, neighbors and what have you, um, one day and then you know be killing them and you know torturing and doing horrendous things the next. And that was really shocking. So I didn't see you know i didn't see anybody get maimed or killed there but we saw the aftermath and heard the stories and that was shocking enough really um it shocked me to my core you know one of the stories we were told in an area that had been rampaged through by a um a, a unit known as arkan's tigers arkan being this sort of um pretty unpleasant uh character and he'd recruited people who were mentally unstable and convicts and people who just shouldn't have been, you know, armed at all. And they marauded through different parts of Bosnia, raping and pillaging and just being, you know, awful. And hearing stories of, you know, I, I won't repeat all of the detail, you know, for your listeners, because it's really quite gruesome. Um, but some of the the sexual abuse and torture in front, you know, in front of family members, you know, doing to other family members was just, you know, it, it gives me gives me shivers now just thinking about some of these stories that we were told. Um, and we had a a lady who had been employed by NATO to work in one of our camps um, because they were desperate, you know, to to work and find purpose. And she worked in in our laundry. Really sweet um, girl who was hideously disfigured facially because she'd been gang raped by um, an op- opposing force uh, with a pistol in her mouth, which had gone off while she was being gang raped. So she was, you know, very disfigured because of that, but alive and and happy to be alive and wanting to you know, just live her life, albeit very different from before. And those sort of stories, and I think the more we hear in terms of these atrocities coming out of Ukraine, you know, we just can't allow them to be normalized. 
We can't just hear them and go, oh, that's another case of abuse. Every single one is shocking or should be shocking. And we can't allow people not to be held to account because, you know, what do we have if, if, if all of this breaks down? So speaking of that, I want to get to the the other side of this conversation in a minute. But I mean, that's you just kind of um, told a story that's a point that I try and make on this podcast, which is this. We don't get a lot of these stories on our television screens. I think back home in the BBC, it's a lot more middle of the road. But certainly here in the US, it's very you know left or right leaning. And it's normally opinions. It's not news at all. And so the men and women that we send overseas to do, you know, to protect this country and protect people in other countries, we don't really hear their voices. So I think, you know, firstly, thank you for even telling that as horrendous as that is, this is some of the evil in the world. That being said, it baffles me when you have a nation where most people, the vast majority want the same thing, regardless of skin color, you know, religious orientation or whatever it is, sexual orientation, um, that over and over and over again in history, the corrupt few, the tyrannical few are able to enact these atrocities on the masses. When you, I mean, you've got such an incredible perspective from Eastern Europe to Northern Ireland to the Middle East and, you know, all the other places that I probably don't know about. Um, you know, what, what are some of the commonalities, if any, that you're seeing that some of these tyrants can generate enough power to, to sway some of the population to do these horrendous things in the name of ultimately greed and power? I mean, I think the things that I've seen, the two, two things that jump out is that these kinds of people exploit vacuums. So where we allow, and we're, we're guilty of this in the West, where we have, you know, gone to places where we've tried to bring stability or we've you know, unseated a, you know, an un, a toxic regime that was, you know, murdering or abusing its people, our failure then to fill the vacuum that inevitably follows when a system that has been able to rule in an autocratic fashion um, through fear quite often is unseated. Others who have similar views um, with charismatic, you know, leadership qualities, you know, because some of these people we have to accept are charismatic leaders, even if it's it's horrific uh, what they do in that name. Um, but it's the vacuum that we either allow to fill or exist that these people will fill. And it's linked very much to information. I mean, we see that Putin's power currently is because he can control the narrative internally. And I saw this in Afghanistan as well, that the Taliban similarly were desperately trying to prevent the natural proliferation of technology. You know, everybody initially had dumb phones and then they became quad SIM phones to try and get any different type of phone network that might exist. But they were still dumb phones as the the proliferation of Android, cheap Android devices that were smartphones, you know, uh, moved around the country. The ability for people to share and receive information from outside meant that that put at risk some of this narrative that would otherwise just be accepted as the way things have to happen. So that's why we saw in Afghanistan often the Taliban threatening telephone companies to turn off mobile phone towers, for example, particularly at night, because they believed that that's how they were being targeted and if a company said well no we've got all these people that need to be able to communicate because you know they just need to and that's the way the world is then they would just blow them up so um the, those two things really it's it's the vacuum that tyrannical you know horrific you know um autocrats or dictators will fill uh, and information those two things we just have to be really um you know careful about and you know find ways in the case of Putin and Ukraine to just get more balanced information to 
those who need it to see that you know, perhaps there is a different perspective or, you know, what they're being told is not correct or true. Because, I mean, that's what I see. I'm talking again from a complete layman's eyes. But, I mean, Russia is such a vast landmass with such a huge population. And through an American lens, again, they're the bad guy. Same way as Iraq was the bad guy, not, you know, the terrorists or the extremists within the country, but the whole, you know, we're at war with Iraq. And that's what I'm seeing now with Russia. And what is heartbreaking is I'm sure if you ask, you know, a vast majority of Russian people, do you have a burning desire to invade Ukraine at the expense of possibly your home and your family, I'm sure most of them will be like, no, I'm totally fine on my farm, you know, doing my thing and raising my but children. They, but they don't see it like that, do they? Because they are being told that there's an existential threat against the survival of their nation. So people who would be quite happy living on their farm if they knew that the reality wasn't that they were about to be invaded and this was the only way to stop it by Putin invading Ukraine... You know, it's just that paucity of information or their, you know, the starvation that they have of or being starved of the right information that would allow them to make a more balanced decision. Um, yeah, it's, it's tough. Yeah, but I mean, that's exactly it. That's, that underlines the point. So it's pure <laughs> misinformation. And you could argue that happens in America. I mean, the last few years are a perfect example. Well, yeah, I mean, there are, there are individuals, as we will all know, who, who you know, they, they live for this. They, they have to peddle the conspiracies. Otherwise, they, you know, their own position is delegitimized. That is the point. So how in 2022, how do we battle that misinformation when we are so empowered on one side of the, the, the coin? But, you know, you can access most most information and Google might feed you what it wants you to know. But ultimately, it should be somewhat truthful here in the US. How do we battle that misinformation in some of these countries to empower the people to actually see what's really going on in the world? Well, I think it's finding ingenious ways to give them an alternative perspective, whether that's through, you know, like the the Starlink program providing, um, you know, internet connectivity in Ukraine, you know, where there is nothing else that would work in, on the sort of land-based, um, you know, internet connection. I mean, potentially even, you know, in China and other places where it's so heavily controlled, I mean, th th we've just got to find ways, I think, to make sure there is, is balance. But you know, many of these regimes could absolutely point to you know, the US and other countries where disinformation is so regular and normalized now that it's, you know, rather than there being facts and fiction, it's, well, those are your facts, but my facts are different. You know, well, they're not arguably facts, but if you believe them, then, you know, it's very hard when you, you know, it's ingrained or the person that you trust, right or wrong, is peddling that, that narrative. You know, if you want to be part of that tribe or you, fundamentally agree with that position it's you know i don't think we should you know trivialize or underestimate how hard it is for some of these people to be able to see an alternative perspective you know i contributed to a book recently that was um called i don't agree and its premise is you know why has it become the case that in so so many parts of life and politics and profession and everything else that you can't have an alternative opinion without becoming the enemy of you know you're either wrong or you're the enemy you know where has mature, um, sensible dialogue and discourse gone? You know, again, back to diversity, you know, having an echo chamber of only people that agree with our view is not healthy. Well, that's a really important point as well. I mean, I'm just absolutely nauseated by the misinformation and the divisiveness in the US. You know, I mean, I've been very vocal about just absolutely 
I just can't stand either of these two because we've got to experience both of them in the last few years and they've done exactly the same thing, drive a wedge through this country when we've been through some things that require us to be pulled together. But yeah. understanding the responsibility that from the outside looking in, that same misinformation and division is destroying the very example that we're supposed to be presenting to the rest of the world. Like, hey, this is democracy. This is what you could have. And they're looking over here and go, oh, what, 70% obese and overweight? <laughs> yeah, and, and, you yeah. Know, obesity epidemic, a, a, a opioid epidemic, a violence epidemic. Yeah, I think we're good. We'll just stay <laughs> with Sharia law, yeah. but thank you, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. All right. Well, then I would love to get into your journey into aviation then. So tell me you know, why you made the decision to transition from the Gurkhas to flying helicopters. Well, I'll rewind firstly to when I was at high school, we we had to do some tests, which I think are pretty common in for people at high school age in the UK, where you do a bunch of, I can't remember what the tests were even about, but it essentially spat out the kinds of jobs that it suggested you should think about as a about to graduate kind of young person. And I remember my three were management consultant, which I ended up doing it amusingly. Um, so they was pretty spot on with that. It said pilot, which I thought was well, no chance because I'm terrible at maths and you clearly have to be able to add up and do stuff well uh, quickly. Uh, and that's never going to work. Um, and then interior designer. Well, I am an artist and I do like that sort of stuff. Um, so all three were fairly actually pretty accurate in, in hindsight. Um, so when I was in the, in the Gurkhas, I hadn't ever thought about flying, although as I found out later on, and I don't think I was aware of it before I even applied that my granddad on my mum's side was actually a pilot during the war. And he flew for the RAF in almost every bomber aircraft type they had. I'd always thought he'd flown after the war um, because he ended up in a squadron called the Dambuster Squadron, 617 Squadron. And they famously did the raids on the dams in Germany. But he missed those raids and joined after that. So I'd assumed that he'd therefore missed all of the war. But I recently got his logbook and found that he'd flown Lancaster bombers, Wellingtons, bow fighters, and this massive slew of, of aircraft of, you know, pretty you know, reputable, famous, um, you know, incredible aircraft during the war. So we had more in common than I realized at the time. Um, anyway, I, and he was actually an artist and a cross-country runner, so there were even more things that were similar to me, although I didn't know it while he was alive, sadly. Um, but when I was in the Gurkhas, I did my three years, and I, I mentioned that, you know, time flew super fast, and I thought... Well, I definitely don't want to leave at the three-year point. There's much more that I would love to learn and see and do. And my girlfriend at the time was also in, in the army and she had just been selected to do flying and got on the pilot's course. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. I'll give that a go. So, it, I mean, I probably should make up a story that makes it sound like it was much more deliberate. <laughs> but it was sort of, well, that sounds fun. And I you know, never thought that I'd be able to fly because I'm not brilliant at maths. Um, so I, I went for the aptitude nearly killed myself doing a loop the loop badly when the instructor thought he's getting on pretty well let's make him do a loop the loop and i got into an inverted spin sort of a la top gun albeit with a propeller plane rather than a cool jet but um you know that didn't go well but um i still passed and, and they said yeah you can join the course so that's kind of how i fell into flying and in the uk you have to learn to fly planes before they let you loose on helicopters I think that's mainly because we just don't have as much money because helicopters are much more expensive. And in the US, if you become a helicopter pilot in the military, I believe you go straight onto helicopters from day one. For us, you have to learn to fly, do aerobatics and all that kind of stuff in planes first. So you understand airmanship and then then they let you loose on helicopters. So um ended up doing three years of that, which was which is pretty fun. It seems like a really weird other compartment in my life now. And when I see a helicopter fly overhead, I think, oh, that looks fun. I thought, well, I did that for three years pretty much full time and I don't 
it's just weird. It's a bit of an out of out of body experience, but it's good fun. You know, I'm, if if there's ever an issue where I turn up to a the scene of an accident, they're like, "Can anyone fly a helicopter?" I'm kind of hoping that that might happen one day. Like, oh, I could I could give it a go. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a real hero moment, though. <laughs> so just just looking at your journey so far, and obviously projecting forward into specialist teams as well. Um, you know, the, you have achieved so much. Is there an element of simply not allowing yourself to have that that mental voice saying, "Oh, you could never do that," because it seems like everything that came across your radar, you you just grabbed with both hands and said, "You know, why not me?" Yeah, I mean, I think this. Actually, I mean, although again, I didn't think of it at the time, but maybe it goes back to my you know childhood of opportunities because of our situation were some were presented, but others would never have been available unless I'd just gone for it and just decided I'm going to do it on my own. So um, I think partly because I my attitude to my life in the military was I had had no plan, basically. I thought I was going to do three years, and then I just kept going job to job to job. And I wanted to do the best I could in each job, but I didn't have a plan to become a general or command X or Y thing. So I think that gave me a freedom to just go, hell, I'm just going to try it. You know, this looks like it could be fun. I love learning new things. And for me, life or my life certainly has been all about experiences, good and bad. And clearly you learn a lot more, learn more, far more from the bad experiences, but you learn a hell of a lot from the good experiences too. And the interesting and challenging ones and, you know, putting myself out there to try new things and, you know, was was something that I just wanted to do. And And I was very lucky that I had leaders above me, you know, in teams that I was part of who encouraged me and supported me in doing that rather than preventing me. Cause quite often I've seen many other friends and colleagues in their careers where they've had bosses who are more controlling and didn't want to lose them from their team. So they prevented them from going flying, for example, or doing parachute selection or doing other things. So I, I've been hugely lucky and that's been really the Gurkhas all the way through. They've been, you know, they are a family group that, you know, found pride and, and encouraged you know wanted to encourage people to go and explore because they saw that as benefiting the regimental name to say look look we've got Gurkhas who are flying and jumping and doing all these things rather than you know holding people close and not letting them leave and explore and grow um and that was a much more mature approach which, which certainly benefited me beautiful now i had a, a guy on the show who became a good friend dave prochera best and he flew he still flies helicopters to this day but he went through the military search and rescue ems and onwards but he spent quite a lot of time flying with prince william now you know i grew up as a child with those two boys as children as well as i progressed through my career i see them express the same altruism as their mother um you know there's there's a real heart for the mental health side a real heart for the the veteran side um, talk to me about when you were able to, to spend some time with William and, and I'd love to hear if you were able to, to talk about some of, you know, the courage that he displayed because Dave humanized him and he told some stories of some, you know, very, very scary near misses that they shared together. And I think it's important for a, 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 a nation whose figureheads may simply slap a bunch of medals on their own chest versus people who are actually out there like harry and william you know really serving out there alongside the rest of us yeah i mean i didn't talk with william about his childhood at all but you know what i can say is you know i'm hugely fond of of him and the way he approaches life i mean he is just the nicest most thoughtful humble person you could ever meet you know we i was lucky to spend time with him when he was doing some military work with me at one point and you know just 
very bright, very articulate. And everybody loved him from, you know, the most junior to the most senior because he has an ability to connect. You know, that's the art of being a good leader is, you know, one of the skills is being able to communicate and connect with your people. And um, certainly he's one of those one of those people. And I see that in, you know, the way he lives his life. And, and I know because we have a, a partnership with with his foundation now for, for one of my um, uh, charities that you know, the way he cares about those who serve, you know, he's been there and done it. He wasn't allowed to serve as Harry was in and you know, deployed to Afghanistan and places like that. But he did arguably a harder job, the next best thing in terms of um, service without going into a war zone, but arguably the hardest type of flying one can do. You know, we always used to, people made fun of us in the army, that, that actually the Navy are the are much better pilots because you know, and the search and rescue because they tend to go out and get called out when everything else has gone wrong and a ship's sinking because the weather's so atrocious or someone's had a horrific accident generally because the weather is so atrocious. That's when they go out, whereas everyone else is flying home to avoid the weather. So the flying is extremely challenging and the requirement, you know, to put your rank and your titles aside and just work as a team. He is absolutely a team player. Um, and, you know, I'm, I feel very confident that we have him, you know, in the in the role that he is as Prince of Wales now and, and the country is in good hands, you know, when the time comes for him um, to step up, um, you know, just very thoughtful, very normal and uh, empathetic and, and kind. Beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, I know you have a pretty interesting story of why you decided to transition out of aviation. And I think it, it kind of mirrors a philosophy that I had in the fire service, which was I always wanted to be the guy going through the door. I didn't want to be the one standing at the fire <laughs> engine pumping or standing outside with a radio. So talk to me about, you know, flying in Northern Ireland and what you ultimately, you know, what made you decide to get out of the cockpit again? Well, I mean, I really enjoyed the flying. Um, it was really challenging. And it was the only place at the time in the sort of early 2000s where you could do a lot of flying. I mean, in, in three years, you know, I flew 700 and something hundred hours, um, which is quite a lot compared to people who were based in the UK where they had massive issues with maintenance and there was no money to fly and all sort of stuff. So I was very lucky that I got to do operational flying, a lot of it at night. Um, so that was quite challenging in itself. And obviously there was a threat um, posed um, by, uh, by the, the terrorists there. So um, enjoyed it, but I'd never lived to fly, if that makes sense. You know, I, I didn't think of it as just ticking a box. But for me, as a junior officer, as all junior officers do, you have to then go and do some military education or do some education. And that came fairly early on in my flying career. And I had to return to the UK, leave that job. And ordinarily, you'd return to that job after you did your six months education but because I had not transferred to become an aviator, professional, a professional aviator, as it were, and join that regiment, I was always a Gurkha and proud to be so that they decided not to keep my slot open for me when I returned. So I had to go and do my education as a Gurkha, which was fine. And so I was kind of let off the time bar that normally would have required you to serve, you know, a full, full amount of time. So for me, that was the trigger to say, well, if they're not willing unless i transfer which i'm not willing to do to go back and fly then you know i'll try and you know do something else that was more specialist with with joint units that um would be doing likely interesting work in places where we were deployed at the time and see how that goes really now how did 9-11 change through your eyes i mean you're already within the military you've served you know you served in in northern ireland you've served in bosnia what was that kind of day like for you and what was that shift for your 
for your military career specifically? Well, I was in in Northern Ireland when 9-11 happened and in our ops room or our um, jock, as Americans would say, the Joint Operations Center, we had a number of TVs above the sort of the, the screens of, of the actual sort of military activity with with news, the news feeds and whatever. And I remember coming in um, after a shift um, flying, well, I think I was flying or maybe I was just running the operations, I can't remember. But I remember coming to the ops room and, and talking to the the ops, um, you know, guy running the that room for the, that period, that shift. And just glancing up and seeing a plane hit one of the Twin Towers, which I'd been up many times, you know, over the years when I visited Manhattan. And I remember I just shouted across or spoke across to some other people watching. I said, what movie is this? And I just assumed it was a movie. I'd completely missed everything that had happened to the the point of the second plane hitting. And it was just, wow, that that was pretty, um, you know, shocking. And for us, very practically, it changed for the next 24 hours. Suddenly, as, as you may remember, you know, US airspace closed and planes that were mid-Atlantic trying to go and land on, you know, anywhere in the States were suddenly turned around. And there was, you know, a bit of a panic scramble where, you know, airlines and airfields were trying to work out how many planes could they accept. So our local airfield where we used to, you know, land our helicopters suddenly became full of random international airlines where people just needed to land because they were going to run out of fuel, which would have been the next atrocity or, you know, horrific incident where planes were just falling out of the sky because they had run out of fuel. So that was the most sort of very visceral and visible thing for us about the first change. But it wasn't until I joined other units later where we were very much involved in working with Americans and coalition in in the Middle East and elsewhere where you know, that term, the global war on terror or the GWAT, which was very much the parlance of, of the US forces, was very visible and, and became the, the focus of, of much of what we did for the following decade. Now, you told us a story about Bosnia and, and obviously some of the atrocities there. I, I said I wanted to talk about the other side of the coin. Whether it's Bosnia or whether it's the Middle East, the other side that I think we don't hear much of is, is kindness and compassion in you know a war zone, whether it's from the allied nations themselves, whether it's from the people within the nation. When you were deployed out in the Middle East between Iraq and Afghanistan, were there moments that really stuck with you of kindness and compassion amidst some of that that horrendous environment these men and women were existing in? Um, well, they were, for me, they were very. They were both. Well, they were very different environments. So, you know, in Iraq, we had very little uh, engagement with the locals day to day because of the type of work we were doing. We had locals working with us, and they were incredible. And they're, they're still friends now, many years later. Um, but in Afghanistan, because of the work I was doing there, often working on my own with just a linguist and going to meetings with ministers and meeting, you know, other groups, there was much more of a connection um than I ever felt in in Iraq. That's not to say there aren't, you know, there weren't clearly many examples, I'm sure, that others have have experienced of kindness and compassion. I think for Iraq, for me, there was just an overwhelming sadness of seeing how there were so many innocent victims that were used and abused by those who sought to do regular Iraqis and and the coalition and security forces harm. You know, there were incidents where we would, um, where a team turned up to a house and all the women and children had been pushed into the courtyard by the adult males. And as they were being processed to sort of work out if they were you know, um, they weren't hiding weapons or anything else. Um, the 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 parents and the, uh, the the husbands and the fathers of these these family members that were in the courtyard below started throwing grenades and and uh, mortars off the roof. You know, to kill the security forces who'd come to their house 
but knowingly killing and would they would have killed and maimed their own family and this sort of that just i couldn't ever quite reconcile how these innocent victims um were deliberately put in harm's way by those who you know didn't really seem to care um and there was one incident working with the us where we landed on a on a, a particular location where um somebody an adult male who was one of the targets had had been killed by a rocket and in chatting to one of the boys a young young boy inside the house about who had been in the house or who lived there or had anybody left to try and understand you know were the bad guys that the team was looking for had they been there at all and having personally seen you know the body of of this male in the field outside not far from the house you know he was holding i think a blue phone and had a packet of marlboro cigarettes in his other hand and asking the kid you know do you know, where's your dad oh he left you know does he smoke yeah he smokes you know what did what color packet does he smoke he smokes the red and white ones has he got a phone yeah he's got a blue phone i'm just thinking you know just horrendous that we were going to leave you know a period a period of time later and this kid was laughing and joking and you know completely unaware about the fact that this had happened outside because he was cowering inside with his family uh, with his mother and sisters and what have you um, and I just felt a, a sense of, you know, sadness and not necessarily guilt, but just sadness because I wasn't guilty of anything. It was his father who put put them in this pitch, position. Um, but sadness, knowing that the moment we left, maybe in the daylight, maybe then they would have gone out with torches. I don't know. But he had no idea that, you know, a period of time later, his whole world would change forever. And that wasn't his fault. And I think that was that was kind of hard to process um at the time and you know i've thought about it since and wondered whatever became of him um hopefully he didn't then fall you know trip into a life you know that his father created um afghanistan there were many more stories of of real kindness and um compassion where i was welcomed in places that we were told you know if you are not a local you just do not go and and i still went because the local afghan said you know i'll look after you and i just had to kind of trust him and we were really well protected and looked after, um, which was, um, you know, amazing. Well, one of the most powerful stories that came out of uh, Afghanistan is uh, the lone survivor story, Marcus Luttrell surviving that horrendous firefight and, and the being brought in by a local village. I think that's the part that the film didn't tell very well was the, the courage of those local Afghani tribes people to protect this American um, seal. One of the, the helicopters that was sent was Extortion 17, a very, very famous tragedy in the SEAL teams. I know that you were actually kind of in that arena. You were exposed to that whole incident. So if you are willing, I'd love to hear your kind of your perspective as, a, as an English specialist through that horrendous tragedy in the SEAL teams. Yeah, I mean, it's, the story's been well told by others, so I won't repeat it here other than to say, you know, I was just a liaison to that particular uh, military headquarters so i was just the brit that happened to be there and witnessed the aftermath of this this incident and it was you know we all felt as soldiers just you know how awful it must be knowing that the aircraft that came to extract you after the first issue happened had been shot down and you were on your own um and uh we were just trying to well the americans but i was sort of you know part of that conversation i suppose just work trying to work out what would any of them do next because you know over time it was unclear whether they were all dead whether some of them were dead how they would even be able to extract themselves to a point where another rescue mission might happen um in terms of the doctor it was pretty lucky 
that that led to a positive outcome in the end, honestly. And the thing that struck me at the time was there, and I don't know if this was in the film or not, but the reality was the doctor had approached a local base much to his own you know, risk to himself to say, look, I've got an American with me in my house, you know, please, can you um, uh, help him or tell me what to do? And he was sent away. If, if I remember rightly, I think he was sent away the first time as, you know, bluffing. And people said, go away, you know, this is a, a trap or something. And then he returned again at even greater risk to himself with, I believe, if I, again, I'm, I'm getting a bit seen on that now, but if my, my memory serves me correctly, um, the doctor came back the second time with a piece of American ration pack, uh, an MRI box with handwriting from, um, you know, Marcus Luttrell on it to say, you know, I'm here. And, you know, so there was a proof of life that it was real, but people were still skeptical because the handwriting was so awful. They thought this can't possibly have been written by. Because he was near death trying to write it. <laughs> an English speaking uh, or native English speaker. Um, so I don't know. I don't mean that to make fun of, of Marcus. I don't remember what was said, but I remember this would be a conversation like, is this another trap? Because this doesn't look like it should be the kind of English, you know, grammar, grammatically or spelling that would be from an American, um, an educated American. And so there were potentially many or number of occasions where this could have just nothing could have nothing might have happened and he could have been left there. And, you know, the Pashtun Wali code of, of you know, providing um, hospitality and looking after people, even if they're your enemy, in some cases goes a long way, but it only goes so far. So, you know, time was absolutely of the essence and it was a pretty, you know, horrendous experience clearly for him and, and tragedy for his team and those who tried to return to extract the rest. But, you know, because so many people sadly had been killed in, in that extortion crash that they were asking, is there anybody who would be willing to help, um, you know, the repatriation ceremony to carry caskets um, to place them on the aircraft? And I remember that image of the, I think it was 19 coffins, uh, maybe it was more, um, you know, and laid out with the US flag in the back of that aircraft. That was really shocking. Um, and I volunteered because I was a pilot or had been a pilot fairly recently. I carried one of the pilot's caskets um, and just sort of hoped that, you know, they would have some sort of dignity when they arrived home. Well, thank you for, again for sharing. I mean, so many of these things, as I mentioned, these are the stories that people need to hear at home because you talk about propaganda, whether it's in you know a communist country or here in the US or the UK. It's very easy to, to, to get sucked into the American flag, gun, Bible conversation, beating your chest and you know sending your children off to war. Well, the reality when those children get over there are the things that you've described, the things that so many people on here have described. And at times that's worth the risk and there's a, there's a job to be done and, and people to be protected and saved. But there's also a responsibility of us back home to ensure that we only allow our leaders to send our children to war when it's absolutely warranted. And without these stories, I think there's a facade of what war actually looks like for a lot of people. Yeah, no, you're right. You know, politicians use their their um, office to often make decisions where I, I often wonder whether they fully grasp what they mean or what is potentially going to happen as a result of the decision they make, often to score political points. You know, there are real people at the end of these missions that, you know, can die or be maimed. I mean, I've lost, uh, I, I gave, honestly stopped counting at about 60 or 70 friends and colleagues killed. You know, some of them, many of them Americans. I've carried more American caskets at funerals and repatriation ceremonies than I think I have British ones. 
Um, but of those who've been um, killed or lost their lives and pay the ultimate price, there are many, many more who've suffered mental or physical trauma. And so I'm very focused on trying to help them, support them. And, and I've got to know, sadly, far too many widows and orphans. But, you know, it's uh, once somebody once said to me, you know, it's it's not the first Christmas or the second Christmas. It's the third, the fourth, the fifth Christmas where people have not because they've just given up caring, but people get busy. So although a lot of these families get a lot of attention and support early on, it's it's when that starts to change that it's more important for us to maintain connections and relationships and, and make sure that their sacrifice is not forgotten. Um, and it's too easy for us to just get busy. And, and I'm guilty of it, as I'm sure you are often, you know, you get wrapped up in your own life, but making time to recognize that, you know, those who have been killed um, leave behind others who are absolutely equally traumatized by by the experiences um of their their lost loved one you know i've when i was shot the first time um you know a guy standing right on my right shoulder you know behind me effectively um was killed when he was shot in the head um so i recognize how much luck is involved in these sorts of situations and i was hit in both legs with with two bullets and then another one grazed me grazed a buttock on the way past which my colleagues kindly said i was shot in the ass um, which then made it into a book at one point. Um, <laughs> but, and then some rocket propelled grenades hit me as well with shrapnel. So, you know, I, I was peppered with things, but I survived and two more bullets went in my backpack as I turned. Um, so I'm very, very lucky um, and recognize that there is a lot of luck. But, um, you know, his family, you know, I, I do think about all the time that happened on Halloween. So literally yesterday, you know, I was shot on Halloween one year. I was blown up on Halloween the follow another year. Um, and so Halloween will always be a moment for me, you know, as much as, you know, I enjoy spending time with my friends, kids and my daughter, if there's a Halloween event, but I'm always thinking about those who, for them and their families, Halloween is a very different experience. Well, that's such a pertinent point as well. And I've heard that from a lot of widows that be on the show, whether it's in the fire service or on the military side. And I've seen it, I've heard it from, from widows of people that I've lost personally. We're amazing when it first happens. The hospital is full of firefighters taking it in turns to, to be there with, you know, with the, with our brother or sister or the body if they pass away and the family. But it is, and it, but it's, it's, it's a hard balance to navigate as well because I try and touch base with as many as I remember to. And I do an annual event every year where I write the names of everyone I've lost on my back during this event, which is a good, you know, reminder and a tag as many of them as I can in social media and all that kind of thing. But there's also, that element where I see them moving on. I see them with, you know, with a new partner, for example. Yeah. And so then you're kind of wary, like, well, do I keep checking? You know, am I going to keep reminding them of their, of their deceased loved one? Or so I think that's another barrier to people. But I think just a, a quick note, just thinking of you, you know, hope you're doing I mean, well. But, they're, but they're, not, they're never going to forget, you know, and I know for, and sadly, too many people where this is the case that they have moved on in terms of, they have a new partner and in some cases have kids with them, but there is still a gaping hole in their life that will never be filled. And no matter how amazing that new person is and just remembering to recognize and acknowledge their, their loss and try and you know make it clear that it wasn't in vain, but, you know, cause it's very easy for some of these people to be, you know, very bitter, particularly if they've been treated badly by the, the establishment after the fact or not being given the support they needed or not being given the information that they need to know, even how their loved one was. You know, I've had conversations with people who felt starved of information about even just, was he happy? Was he in a good mood on the last day and the hours before he died? And, you know, 
just the comfort that that can give that person by saying, yeah, we were joking around. He was absolutely in his element. He was absolutely critical to this mission. He was loving life. He was doing what he wanted to do. Um, because again, I also recognize that for those of us in quite demanding operational roles, whether you're a firefighter or uh, military or, or many other types of roles that you can get very sucked into the moment. And just that is your focus because you have to be, particularly if you're responsible for others, if you're caring for them and you want to bring them home safely, but you also have to achieve your mission, your focus needs to be on that part of your life at the time. And therefore family members, I know have often felt in many cases that they weren't thought of, that they were just not in that person's consciousness. And I would argue that's not the case. It may be that they didn't communicate as much, but don't please don't ever assume that you weren't with them every step of the way. Now, there's one case of a, a guy who died in Afghanistan who I met many times for meetings, and I didn't know him well, but professionally we had to meet. And um, I know that his widow felt that he was very detached and hadn't really been with communicating with them before he died. And they had assumed in this case wrongly that he therefore it didn't matter to him or that he was, they were not in his thoughts very much. But for me, having visited his little, you know, wooden um, shack, uh, which was his office, it was covered in kids' paintings or pictures and family photos. So even though he might have might not have verbalized or been able to pick up the phone, because back in the day, you know, you didn't have ubiquitous internet and the ability to communicate as we do now, or, or people assume you can, or expect to be able to, even when they're deployed, his family, in my view, looking at him and listening and working with him, were absolutely with him. They surround, literally, as well as metaphorically, surrounded him in his office. Every wall had pictures of family. He might not have picked up the phone, but he was with them. So I wrote to his widow to say, look, please, because someone said that she was worried that, you know, he just hadn't communicated and therefore they weren't in his thoughts. And just to say, look, I don't know you. I didn't know him very well, but I just want, I heard that this was a concern. Please know that my perspective of having spent time with him in those last few weeks was that you were there. Absolutely. I mean, I saw photos of you. I've never met you, but I know that you were there supporting him. Beautiful. Yeah, because it's such a hard kind of thing to navigate when we're in our flow state to get in that flow state, whether you're in a firefight, whether I'm in a structure fire or working a cardiac arrest. At that moment, of course, you're not thinking about your loved ones. You, you, you know, there's, there's not enough bandwidth in the mind to be thinking about all those things. And I think especially when courage is needed, that's not a good thought to have at that moment in time. But outside of those, when you're coming down, and I heard you talking on the um, the podcast before, when you were asked, oh, how does having children change the way you were operationally? And you said no, and I agree 100%. But I remember going on a decapitated three-year-old when my son was two. And after the fact, that really kind of, that hit me hard. And it wasn't like I didn't crumble or anything, but that was a, oof, that was a real gut punch. So at the time, if that little girl had been, you know, not critically wounded and we're fighting to get her out it'd be a totally different mindset but after the fact is when we have to give ourselves compassion and allow ourselves to process some of these horrific things especially if they parallel our fa <clears throat> excuse me our family at home yeah i mean i didn't um as, as you said you know when i spoke before i didn't change the way i operated but after my daughter was born if i ever saw things that involved children of a similar age or young girls of a similar age i would i could feel myself more connected and more eternal i suppose to people i didn't even know just thinking I, I can't this is hard to watch when somebody's been wounded or maimed or or has died as a result of someone else's actions that definitely um it was something that i thought about um but it didn't change the way i operated if that makes sense 
It does. Well, speaking of trauma, I mean, you know, as we've gone through, you talked about being shot, you talked about losing people. It appeared in the storytelling of the podcast I listened to that there was one incident that did kind of affect you a little bit more. And I resonated with it completely. And that was purely from the lens of the inability to save. You talked about a helicopter crash. You talked about trying to to fight to, to rescue the people. I'd love to hear your perspective of this. But to me, it's not the actual death. It's not even the mutilation. It's the the screams of the family that are left behind or the guilt and shame of, I was taught if I do A, B, and C, then this person will jump up, give me a hug, and then go back to their family. When that doesn't happen in the real world, you're left with this this real guilt and shame of, you know, the, the inability to save. There's no better way to describe it than the, the inability to save itself is a crushing weight. So, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Talk to me about that that incident and and you know was that one of the more traumatic moments of your military career? Um, yeah, yes and no. I mean, it was shocking and traumatic, but it was it was honestly so dangerous with the environment we found ourselves in that you were, your adrenaline and your senses were just waiting for. I mean, everything had gone wrong pretty much, and we were just it was a weird sort of frenetic feeling that for what should have been a, a one hour job ended up being 12 hours in the the summer heat of that that particular country and we found ourselves in a place known colloquially as the triangle of death which gives you a flavor of <laughs> how people viewed it that was the best review i think it got on TripAdvisor. so um <laughs> it was a pretty grim place to be where we knew there were considerable threats and because of what had happened um you know there'd been bombs dropped and the I mean it was all it was all all hell had broken loose, but my team found ourselves going to a crash site of we didn't really understand at the time what we were going to. It was confused on the radio, but it ended up being an American um helicopter that had crashed, sadly. And we went to go and try and protect the the crash scene to avoid any local insurgents coming and you know taking the bodies and doing what they'd done previously in Somalia um to American down pilots, which was just horrific. So we were there as a sort of rescue mission to, I mean, we didn't assume anybody had survived, but we were, I mean, in my heart of hearts, I was praying that we'd find somebody badly wounded and not, not killed. And so me and one other American, we decided to go forward to see if there was anything we could do to save them. Um, and because this helicopter was one that was, was flying in to replace another one that had run out of ammunition, it was full of rockets and, and, um, and bullets and because it was in flames, um, these things were exploding basically around us. So as we approached, we could see that the pilots were still strapped in and, and unfortunately um, they clearly were deceased. Um, but we still wanted to try and get them out. We wanted to not let them just be part of this horrific scene and wreckage. But um, it was just too hot and too hard to get them out of their um, harnesses. They were, you know, everything was you know, just really difficult. So um, my gloves were burning and and my colleagues was finding similar issues. And the closer we got, the more you could hear bullets just whizzing really close to you. And we made the really, and this is probably one of the most difficult decisions I've ever had to make actually as a leader was that we had to both agree that the right decision to make then was to leave them and retreat rather than continue to try and what felt like the right thing to do to release them from uh, the scene. But, be at very real risk of dying a second later because of a rocket or a bullet exploding or hitting us. So we retreated and had to wait for the the you know the helicopter to burn itself out. And then then a team came in later that night. But once we'd gone back to the road to meet the other few members of the team, we were hearing on the radio that 
um, drones or in this case planes that were flying around were had identified a truckload. I mean, literally, they said up to 40 fighters coming your way. And so as a team, I think there were four of us or maybe five of us on the ground uh, in this particular bit, very isolated, um, were kind of you know, thinking, right, what do, what do we do? We'd sort of you know, laid out magazines of all our remaining bullets and thought if they come, you know, this is Custer's last stand kind of thing. And that was kind of a that was a, an interesting moment, I think, professionally to think that this is this this could be it. And we're, we're going to go down. We're not going to go down without a pretty damn big fight. Um, as it turned out, um, insurgents did approach in a vehicle. Uh, we fired warning shots that then triggered them um, firing a magazine of AK-47 automatic fire through the windscreen at us. Luckily, none of us were hit. We managed to stop the vehicle. Um, and then this sort of standoff happened where for the next many hours, I think probably eight hours or so, where um, we were wondering whether anyone was still alive in the vehicle and you know what they might do. Somebody did jump out at one point lifted up his shirt to show that there was no suicide vest and then jumped back in. Then no more sign of life until it got dark and we're still watching the vehicle. And then, and, and, you know, they come quite close to us by this stage because they were driving towards us firing. Um, and then the next time this, in, the last um, insurgent jumped out of the vehicle and ran towards us, he had, he'd got a, um, a weapon and, and a suicide vest this time, you know, he'd put it on and he fired a burst of, of AK 47 and then, um, you know, we returned fire and then he exploded. Um, so a pretty intense experience for a, a small team who felt we were surrounded and, and that might be it. And then then a team came in and, and obviously extracted the uh, the pilots and then then we took them in our helicopter to the um, to the mortuary um, and sort of gave them a send off to say, you know, thank you and goodbye. Never met the family. Don't you know. And that that's part of the challenge, I think, for a lot of people, whether they've been involved in traumatic incidents or see the aftermath quite often if you're busy doing your work forward in the military or in, you're in a fire how often do you actually ever meet the families or the extended families of people i mean i i didn't um or i've met some but most of them i didn't and i think that can be as challenging as meeting distressed family members by wondering how they're coping and knowing that they you know that they will be absolutely distraught but you can't do anything to support them or help them yeah. Well, thank you again for sharing that because that's, as I said, that that inability to do what you hope you'll be able to do, I found was probably the hardest thing. But it's funny because amidst all this horror, I think our professions find a lot of dark humor and you can't help but think of the suicide bomber thought he had his vest on, ran out, went, oh, fuck, and then went back in again because, you know, what the hell was he doing lifting his shirt the first time? So it's, it's interesting, you know, decisions being made by the occupants of the truck at that moment. Yeah, I mean, after he after he did explode, I remember we we giggled a little bit, like <laughs> young schoolgirls, kind of going, you know, is it just the release of okay, we're okay now, we're safe. You know, that's pretty unpleasant thing that we've just witnessed, but whew, we're still alive, and we had a gig bit of a giggle, just of a nervous, nervous giggle. But yeah, black humor or um, you know that sort of thing does keep people going, and and I'm always careful to explain to people who criticize some things that you know, soldiers are reported to have said or done. And clearly when they've desecrated stuff, that's not okay in any any way, shape or form. But where people have made a joke, you know, this is a coping mechanism for people because, you know, put yourself in their position. How would you have coped if you'd just seen those things happen? So we have to be perhaps more empathetic of, of the situations we require people to make split second decisions in and make the right decision and then understand how the human brain 
generally copes with these kinds of things. Some are able to compartmentalize. I never consciously did, but I think even from my childhood, that's just how I'm wired now that I'm able to package stuff in a way that means that I'm sort of protected, but without really thinking of it in that way. You know, when I, all the years I spent in Afghanistan, um, because my daughter was in Australia, if I got leave, I was able to get an agreement with with some of my bosses that I could fly from rather than having to go all the way back to the UK and risk the inevitable Air Force delays and cancelled flights and stuff that always happened. I could get on an Emirates flight from Kabul to Dubai and, and then fly to Australia so I could maximise the few few days that I would have with my daughter in the time that I had. And for me, putting my civilian clothes on at Kabul airport and getting on the you know A340 or whatever it is from the Emirates, landing in in Dubai, and then I generally have an eight-hour layover because there was never good, never a good connection from Kabul to Sydney. Um, but that eight-hour period where I could have a wash, have an eat, you know, have dinner, and, and change my clothes was not tying a bow on the previous compartment, but it kind of was. Um, so I was very able and quickly to move into the next thing and be focused on the time I had and then very quickly move back into the into sort of the war zone um, model or mode when I got back. See, that's interesting. I think that's something that a lot of people struggle with. You know, I mean, I've heard it so many times. 24 hours prior, I was in a gunfight and now I'm in Kansas, you know, in an ice cream yeah. shop wondering what the yeah. hell just happened. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I'd had a weird one. I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't fighting, but I was doing a job once in an operational role where I was supporting a, a much more senior officer. And, and we were required to visit Iraq, Afghanistan, and places like that. Every four to six weeks, we'd go and do a visit for a day or two. And um, one of these visits, we, I was in the office in Northwest London for all day on the Monday. We then got a taxi to Heathrow Airport in London, took an overnight flight to Kuwait, met the Royal flight in the morning in Kuwait, jumped on the little jet that they had, flew into Iraq, spent the day in Iraq, walking around Baghdad and doing stuff and, you know, meeting people and stuff. Flew back out to Bahrain that night, had an overnight flight back to London. I'm back at my desk in London on Wednesday, kind of going, I was here on Monday. I was in Baghdad yesterday and I'm back in London. Those sort of slightly surreal experiences, you just kind of had to, well, I found a way of just sort of laughing about it, going, this is kind of bizarre. No, it is. It's insane. And even, you know, it's it's, it's hard to navigate, but in the fire service, you know, you, you come home seven eight o'clock in the morning and you sit down with your son or daughter and you have breakfast, breakfast. when yeah. two three hours you might have been cutting the child out of a car you know and, you, and that that people forget about that transition i honestly think that's harder you know and then part of the reason why i set up the charity i have is because i believe we need to think much more holistically about trauma and service and recognize that just because somebody's been in a green uniform or a, a military uniform per se for 20 years even they might well have seen far less trauma than a firefighter or a paramedic or, you know, um, ED nurse in their first week on the job, cutting children out of burning vehicles or whatever it might be. You know, we have to just think differently about understanding those things that bring us together or there's a common thread of service and trauma and find better ways to ensure that we we look after people and support people who have been affected by that kind of physical or mental trauma and not just have all the focus on the military or the fire service, you know, I would struggle to name many fire charities. I'm aware of American and British military charities, and there are some amazing ones. But it's we've got to think of this differently. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to your transition out. I just want to hit one more point before we do, because I heard you touch on it in the Declassified podcast, and people listening to the show know this is a real hot-button topic for me. But when I first started this show, for the first three years when I asked about this topic, there was a lot of 
you know, tight-lipped closeness about about it. And then all of a sudden, there was a lot of discussion. It was the other side. The kind of foundation of this question is this. As a firefighter and a paramedic in the U.S., I have witnessed the epic failure of the, you know, the, the uh, um, prohibition of drugs, the war on drugs. So I've watched, you know, addiction, and this is the beginning of the story, was based on addiction. I've watched addiction not only tear families apart, but empower the underworld, create gang violence, prostitution, homelessness, everything. Everything that we see, you can reverse engineer to a mental health problem. And so then to take the the addicts of the world and put them in the shadows that therefore empowers the shitbags of the world is is a discussion we need to pull out to the forefront and question that entire you know framework. To me, it's an 80-year longitudinal study of an epic failure that we need to rethink. What's interesting that's hardly ever discussed is the element of illicit drugs to fund terrorism of some of the extremists that you guys were sent over to fight the last 20 years. So I heard you touch on it in the other podcast. Talk to me about your exposure to the illicit drug trade and where those opiates were, were being sent to ultimately. Well, back in the early days of the most recent British Afghan campaign, and given that we have hundreds of years of, of not necessarily getting it right, um, the statistics used at the time in this sort of mid-2000s was that 98% of all the heroin harvested in, in Afghanistan was um, finding itself on the streets of the UK through various routes in through Europe um, and the Middle East, um, which was pretty shocking. And at the time, it was clearly a massive issue. I would love to have taken people from the streets of the UK to come and see quite how unpleasant it is when they make it and you know you assume there are these nice laboratories and people in white coats it's all sterile i mean it's it's it could be that could not be further from the truth it's horrendous the amount of hideous chemicals used to make this stuff you know ammonium chloride and cetagan hydride there's really toxic hideous stuff that goes into making heroin and when it's pure inverted commas again air air quotes um because it's white it's just been bleached it's not pure it's just horrific um anyway Back then, actually, when we first came in, the amount of heroin or opium being grown was far less than many years later after decades or a couple of decades in Afghanistan. Um, so although the Taliban clearly benefited from the illicit trade, there was far less opium being grown then than, um, than when we left Afghanistan, which is slightly sad. Um, I did have an issue at the time with a US policy, which was to just destroy the crops because a lot of these people, they only grew opium, or not only, but primarily grew opium because it, it's a really hardy crop. It will always grow in the most horrendous conditions. So if you were struggling to feed your family, if you had a an amount of opium in your sort of fields, then that was the one thing you could rely on, even if there was a drought or a, you know an issue. Um, so they are the the lowest common denominator in, or the you know the lowest uh, level on the tree. And so I felt that, that there was a massive risk of if you destroy their income and ability to feed their families, they're going to become the $20 Taliban that are paid by the day just to go and cause mayhem and issue. We've got to look further up the food chain and it's the traffickers where the money is made. Um, you know, I think it was $150 per kilo of opium, but uh, I mean, I'm, I obviously don't, um, I'm not a heroin addict, but I think it was about $60,000 or $100,000 for a kilo of heroin. You know, so the markup from raw opium gum to refined heroin was was pretty steep. So it's the traffickers that the ones that you need to stop and not, you know, punish the farmers who, you know, are just trying to, in many cases, feed their family. And I spoke to so many of them around the country and they said, we really don't want to grow this stuff. 
because the hassle we get from the Taliban demanding their cart and stuff is just, it's not worth it. But I have to, if I can grow four kilos of opium or, or harvest four kilos, if everything else fails, I can feed my family for the winter. So that's the only reason I do it. I'd much rather grow something else, but it's just too hard. So we often forget or don't spend enough time understanding what motivates people to do things that we would consider illegal or illicit. Um, you know, I can't talk to other you know illicit drug trades because I've not really been involved in it other than watching you know the, the obligatory narcos series during lockdown, COVID lockdown and stuff. Um, but you know, it is it is a scourge that I wish those of the Western liberal democracies who, you know, see this as a recreational thing, the damage that it's doing and what it's actually fueling and the the harm and the, you know, destruction it leaves in its wake. It's pretty appalling when you, when you see it up close. Well, again, thank you for that. Because these are, these are so many different perspectives at everyone from, you know, special operations soldiers, specialists like yourself through to Zhao Gulao, the guy who spearheaded decriminalization in Portugal. I sat with him in Lisbon and, and heard about how they, they did that. But as someone who has also seen all this tragedy through my own eyes in my career, um, you know, we have to pull the curtain back on this and hearing all these different levels and it's funding this terrorism that we're fighting and it's funding the violence and the gangs on the streets in, in you know, especially in America. And then there, there are countries, especially Scandinavia, you know, Portugal, some, some of the countries actually in, I think, see the Central or South America that have decriminalized and completely revolutionized their society. And what do we put in place of drugs in the fields? Coffee or hemp or, you know, there's so many things that we could, you know, allow, not allow, that's, that's, that's the wrong word completely, that we can power these, um, these farmers to grow instead, that there would be a fair trade for, that would, you know, pay a fair price. But as you said, you know, you got to remove the people who are preying on these farmers that are using the profits from these drugs to fund their terrorist activities. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, then transition out. We've been chatting almost two hours. So I hope you're okay with, with time. I apologize for <laughs> you got such an amazing story so far. Um, there are a lot of our brothers and sisters that really struggle with the transition, whether it's the military, police, fire. Um, there are a multitude of, of kind of reasons that I've identified through what I've learned as a student on this podcast for six years now. You've got that sense of purpose. You know, you, you took up arms or you, you know, you climbed on a fire engine to make the world better. You identify as that profession as a sense of pride, even though sometimes it's a dangerous thing to, to think you are that profession now. You've got that tribe around you. There's men and women that you serve with that you would die, you know, die for literally. And then one day your ID doesn't work. The door closes behind you and you're not in that, that role anymore. So talk to me about your transition and if you had any struggles yourself. Um, yeah, I mean, a great question and intro for that piece. I mean, I didn't struggle per se, but I, I recognize that I'm not necessarily the traditional service leaver who's been in the same regiment or the same unit their career i mean i as you you've heard i bounced around because i wanted to try new things and learn new stuff so i've my career has been one of that's let's say unconventional and it's it's it ha haven't done the right jobs at the right time that you're supposed to do to promote at the same you know there's a certain a certain path that one is supposed to follow and i've sort of not done that really um so for me in my mind uh, my mindset has been very much that my career has been about doing interesting things with interesting people in interesting places. And I was lucky to find a pretty soft landing, but working in a, in a job that was completely new to me in terms of consulting globally. But again, I was working in interesting places, doing interesting things with interesting people. 
So I didn't actually feel like I transitioned per se from one environment to another. It was just it was just different, but it was a lot of it was the same. It was the same mindset and approach I had to life and learning something new and experiencing new stuff and meeting new people. So that I think helped me hugely that my perspective and approach to the challenge of of, of looking for a job. I think the the thing that I if if I struggled with anything, it was the idea that it's normal to change jobs in the civilian world quite frequently if you want to. If you're not enjoying it or it is not a good fit, you can move. Whereas in the military, you're kind of inculcated in a view that, or you're 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 conditioned to think that, well, this is a career. So I had this, you know, rose-tinted view that the first company I joined would be the company I'd be with for the next 20 years. And I did two years with them, then two and a half for the next one. Um, and then I do a bunch of other stuff now, including a, a main job um, that is full-time as well. Um, and that, I suppose, was a little bit of a transition mindset to be always open to other opportunities, not think you have to stay if it's not quite what you want to do or it's not a good cultural fit. And I left one company where I just didn't feel it was a good cultural fit. Um, took a big pay cut changing company, but I felt much happier with the new company because it was a team that I could be proud of being part of and there was less than negative um, sort of stuff around it. Um, but I recognize that that's not how most people find their transition. And if you've been in the same unit all your life, that's a huge wrench to suddenly be in the in the big wide world, knowing that you still got to feed your family and have something that is going to at least match the security that you were used to. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge I see a lot of my friends and colleagues struggling with is the perceived loss of security of the job because you could be the worst officer or soldier or the best soldier and you're you're unless you do something egregious you're probably going to keep your job um whereas in in the real world where it's more of a commercial um environment clearly that's not going to fly so like so many people and Ryan Parrott is someone that you know I've about to connect you guys with that I'm going on around the world with um so many people that come on the show have served for multitude of years, you know, decades. And, you know, some people transition out and then they, you know, go play golf the rest of their life or whatever it is. But so often the people that have on the show, when they transition out, they look around and go, how can I help in this space now? What can I do even more than I've served? So what made you kind of transition out with that altruistic lens and start the Unsung Foundation? Um, mainly because I feel so lucky to have been able to come out relatively unscathed. You know, I've witnessed so many people who've not been so lucky who either don't have the luxury of being able to go for a run because they've lost their legs or they, you know, just can't leave the house or whatever. So I, I felt that I have an obligation to to use what skills with a very small S that I have and the energy that I still have to try and find a way to give back to those who've been less fortunate or have been less able to cope with either the transition or with life as a result of the injuries or experiences that they've had. And my first exposure to the charity sector was through a charity called um, Royal British Legion Industries. And I'm proud to be an ambassador um, and founding patron of, of their Tommy Club, which is one of the um, the groups that you can join. And they provide you know a, a plethora of different services to different types of those military veterans who uh, might be struggling from you know those who've retired you know it might be widows of the the original service person all the way through you know pastoral and other kind of employment care and support for people who can maybe only do two hours a week in a, in a job um so that there's a full range of understanding that everybody is different and everybody has different and diverse needs and trying to find a way as they have done for over 100 years 
to support the military community. But in my in my work with them, I've been more exposed to other charities, and I was perhaps naive, but um, and I guess it's just it's life, isn't it? That it's a competitive space, and everybody's fighting for dollars and pounds and market share to to fund the work they want to do. But I was very disappointed to see how territorial some charities are and how bullying some of the bigger ones can be to the smaller ones who are delivering on a much smaller scale, but really valuable support and service and care. And given that I've been you know, put back together a few times by doctors and nurses, and I've got friends who are firefighters and you know, um, law enforcement and Coast Guard and all these people who put others first, you know, they put themselves in harm's way to, to ensure others um, don't have to. I just thought there's a there's got to be a different way of thinking about service and trauma. So you know, to my earlier point, I wanted to think more holistically about how we support this community writ large and whether it's the the young female paramedic who's traumatized from her first week on the job, you know, scraping bodies off a freeway or a 22 year military veteran or anything in between. We have to recognize that service and trauma are the things that binds us and connect us together that make us similar rather than you know as the world and polarized politics and, and everything seems to be right now finding reasons to to see difference and and divide so the unsung foundation is designed basically to to think about this community differently and it doesn't deliver any care or support directly itself there are many charities thousands of charities globally that do that but what we want to do is to raise money and awareness for this whole community and avoid as happens currently people falling between the cracks in care because they're either unaware of other charities or support that's available to them while they're told to wait for the first charity they approach when they've got capacity. Well, the six months waiting for a bed or a place on a course might be the time where you spiral into utter despair or, or your illness, you know, uh, takes you away. So, um, yeah, the genesis of the Unsung Foundation is to try and shake up a little bit in a small way, but hopefully in a big way in time, the way we think about service and trauma shine a light on all the amazing things that service gives you and gives our community and remind people that there's a whole bunch of unsung around there. You know, Heroes is sort of silent, as it were, but it's there. The unsung community is there when we need them, but we rarely think of them until we crash our vehicle and we need to be cut out and we need to be treated and we need the police to close the road and yada, yada, yada. You know, they are the last people we often think about, but the first we need when it matters. Uh, and I want us to just, you know, recognize that. Well, as you said, there are so many great nonprofits out there. And, and I think you know, I love what you're doing with that as far as you're feeding funds to to kind of match the the recipient, whether it's a soldier or a first responder with the appropriate charity for them. I have sadly witnessed recently, you know, some of that, um, you know, not sharing toys when it comes to the charitable space as well. Through your yeah. perspective, without naming names, you know what are what are some of the reasons behind that? I mean, ultimately, these are all people that are supposed to be coming from altruistic point that should be puzzle pieces of this giant picture that is helping the community. You yeah. know what what are you witnessing? But maybe some of the ethos behind some of these less friendly charitable philosophies. Well, to my point, it's, it's territorial because they're fighting for every dollar and every pound to deliver the service and the care they believe is the best. You know, every charity you meet, they will tell you that they are delivering the, the most cutting edge service, whatever flavor that might be. So I don't think many of them are maliciously trying to undermine other charities. Some, are, you know, I've experienced some bullying, but um, that's more because they feel threatened. If you're successful as a new charity and you're starting to raise funds that are making a difference, they would see that that 10 million that you've just raised is 10 million that they would have really liked. So I'm... 
trying to get people to think that, you know, because we don't pick any charities, we want charities large and small to approach us for funding. And, you know, if you've got a, if you can tell us how much you want and what you're going to spend it on, how you're going to measure it so it can genuinely have impact and how you will collaborate with others. That's the key third pillar when you, when you request money. I want to know how will you work with other charities in this space to provide a more holistic, you know, you know care framework that won't allow people or, or see people fall through the cracks. If you turn around to me as a charity and say, I want X thousand dollars, this is how I'm going to measure it. Great. Tick, tick. But I don't need to collaborate because we are the best charity in this space. Or, you know, wrong answer. You don't get any funds because we need to create a better network. I would love to see more collaboration. And where the fire service has learned something amazing, let's share that. You know, cross-pollinate it with the health sector, with the military sector. So we we share capacity. But it, I think it fundamentally comes down to everybody's fighting for every dollar and every pound. And that drives some of this behavior. And it's it's just human behavior, but it, it doesn't make it right. So I've got one more one more thing I want to ask you before I let you go. Um, you had mentioned about doing the, the world's longest Kazavak. Um, what I think was very powerful about the story is you have, you know, some elite tactical athletes performing a feat that the expectation would be, well, they succeed and, you know, everyone applauds and then we move on. So talk to me about what, you know, who you were with, what you were hoping to achieve and how it actually panned out and the takeaway from that specific message. So yeah, this is this is a lesson for me in screening my calls better, um, because a friend Michael who who runs the Declassified podcast he called and said I've got this idea, and at that point I should have hung up, and I'm I'm not very <laughs> really good at doing that yet, but I'm learning. Well, I should learn from now on. And he said I've got this idea. You know, um, suicide prevention is clearly something close to all of our hearts because we've lost you know friends and colleagues in the military space, but it's a bigger scourge. You know, adults and children in in the UK and globally. Um, the numbers are quite shocking. And in the UK, for a fairly small country, there are 125 suicides a week. Um, and the average weight of a uh, British adult is 75 kilograms. Don't know quite how many that is in in, uh, in American pounds, but um, that's the average weight. So the long, world's longest Kazavak idea from Michael was to carry a 75 kilo stretcher, a metal stretcher for 125 miles with six of us. So four people on the stretcher at any one time to raise awareness and money for um, a charity that, that focuses on suicide prevention. We were all military veterans, um, and unfortunately, we weren't all the same height. That was the first issue, <laughs> um, because ergonomically or engineering-wise, uh, the the load balancing was, was well, it ended up being horrendous, um, if, we're, if we're brutally honest. Um, so we, we started off fairly well. Um, having done no training, I was injured right to the last minute. I've got various disabilities as well, so... I probably shouldn't have said yes anyway. Um, everyone else was carrying injuries as well, but we started because that's what we do. And we all assumed that we would do it. It was going to be horrific, but, you know, 48 hours, 70, whatever many hours later, we would have done 125 miles. We'd be broken, but we'd have raised a ton of money. Uh, we we managed the first 40 hours, sorry, 40 miles in just over 12 hours. I think it was 12 hours. I can't remember. Anyway, it was it a was fairly decent pace, uh, but it was really, really uncomfortable. Um in after the after we finished um we showed the video or one of the team members showed the video to an engineering professor and i'd assume like we all had that given it was 75 kilos between four of us that there would be an equal weight distribution and carrying 20 something kilos would be fine um but he said based on the difference in height and the way that you were moving most of the time somebody would have been carrying up to 50 kilos of that because of the way it was working so we're all picking up pretty in pretty um awful injuries or, or pretty uncomfortable injuries quite early on and then we hit 
the first stop where where we stopped every 10 miles for uh, 15 minutes just to get some food and and rehydrate and then we we found a field just by the side of the road to have a few hours sleep in just in the in under the stars you know just to get two or three hours of sleep before we started the next 40 miles for the next day when we were about to go on to a a pretty remote barren part of the the hillsides in or sort of not mountains but pretty rugged terrain in the UK and we woke up and you know i'd certainly been really hurting i was struggling and thinking there's no well not that there was no way but i'm thinking i wonder how the hell i can get through this i wonder if i'm the only one feeling this this broken um and then the leader michael you know woke up and said we right, we all need to really think about what we're going to do today and what we do and we all went, what do you mean and then we ended up having this conversation about the the right decision versus the decision we wanted to make we wanted to continue um, but we were all pretty broken by then. The support team had been witnessing how we'd all changed and the way we were moving and the niggles people were picking up. And so we made the difficult decision with a really open dialogue with Michael and the team that the right thing to do, because we were about to say go into this area where Kazavak and support would not have been there. We if somebody had been broken, broken a leg or had a serious injury, we would we'd have been pretty screwed. So we made the decision to call it then at 40 miles rather than in 125 miles which was still a decent you know distance if we'd done a marathon with it people have probably said well done you've done it uh, and then clearly as you mentioned had been a problem an expectation that we'd have just smashed it because we were all athletes or you know military or you know fit and actually mentally it was a challenge for all of us to admit that it was harder than we'd any of us had thought and to have that open conversation i think made a much better story actually for the charity that we were trying to raise awareness and awareness about and money for the issue being you know suicide prevention and and the fact that people don't talk so the fact that we as fit capable functioning arguably adult males were having to have this kind of conversation to say we not have admitted defeat but the right thing to do now is to talk about this and and agree that this is the right thing to do was probably more powerful because that's what doesn't happen quite often before people take their own lives. And, and it was really, again, visceral for two members of the team, a friend of theirs, um, I think it was in the military, had donated to our charity website two weeks before we started. And he killed himself, he took his own life the Monday of the, the week where we started on that Thursday. You know, having known what we were about to do, the reason we were doing it, and had still not been able to talk to them about the challenges he was facing and so you know that that was just that was yeah it was an experience it was um it was an experience well it aligns also with the helicopter story you know realizing that the right thing to do was to actually retreat at that moment in time and actually i did uh, i think it was murph was it murph maybe it was another one anyway i did i did some sort of crossfit hero workout style in full firefighter gear probably about a year ago now and it was middle of summer and, you know, I'm older now, I'm 48. So, um, you know, the the, contri- the combining factors were to the point where I had to make a decision. If I'm going to carry on, I've got to doff some of this gear or I can yeah. keep going and pass out. Well, which is the better yeah, yeah. of those two? I, I relieve some of the load, I share the load and therefore we can keep moving forward. So that's what was really powerful about the message with you is you know, we talked before, there's absolutely a, a horrendous mental health epidemic going on. It may express through addiction, it may express through suicide, but overall, it's a mental health crisis. And, you know, having these conversations like we've had today, and even, you know, realizing that someone who operated at the highest level 
gets to the point where they go, actually, the right thing to do is to take a knee right now, to stop, is, I think, as you said, that that couldn't have been a better ending to that particular one, because otherwise you're a superhero and the rest of us are just being weak. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Can you blame anyone else for your idea of doing that? That event in the firefighter outfit, did you screen your calls or was this your idea and you have no No, I'm, I'm just a fucking idiot, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I've done silly things like that. I did a, an ultra marathon in my hotel room in lockdown in Sydney when I was waiting to see my daughter. I thought, let's make use of the time. So I did a marathon in my room, which was eight pa- I had to turn around every eight paces. Again, it was for, for RBLI to raise money for you know the fact that people were struggling in lockdown with mental health and stuff. And then I stupidly said to my uh, followers that if they kept donating, I'd keep running. So I ended up doing 52 kilometers in an ultra marathon in my stupid hotel room in Sydney, which was, I regretted that the moment I started. <laughs> was that during lockdown as well? Is that where you were doing it in the hotel room? I had to do two weeks. I did oh. two visits to Australia in lockdown or three visits actually. And two of them had to be locked in a hotel room for two weeks at a time. That is insane while you're trying to see your daughter. Yeah. Yeah. So it was worth it, obviously. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Ash, I want to let you go. I know your your dog that we discussed is probably bursting right now. I'm sure mine is as well. <laughs> but I, well, I she's tr- gone home with someone else. That's her style. There we go. <laughs> she let herself out. But yeah. no, seriously, I I truly, truly appreciate this conversation. It's been so important. We've gone everywhere from choir boys to Afghanistan, everything random, in between. Random, yeah, but uh, so just uh, before I let you go, I want to make sure though, where can people find Unsung Foundation and how can they donate? unsungfoundation.org and on all the socials it's unsung global beautiful well i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today i'm looking forward to meeting face to face soon hopefully but uh thank you so much thank you take care